This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. Get in, losers. This is the Lady Killers, a feminine rage podcast. I'm Jen. I'm Sammy. I'm Rocco. And I'm May. Our podcast is a tribute to the female identifying killers in horror and more. Each episode will feature us, your Supreme Court of female murderers, discussing our favorite lady killers from your Julias and Jennifers to your Carries and Christines. We'll tell her story, decide if it's good for her horror, and answer the most important question of all. Would we die for her? Join us on Thursdays as we pull on our sweaters, snatch our ice picks, sharpen our scissors, and honor the lady killers who live on the silver screen. No boys were harmed in the making of this podcast. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast presented by the Consequence Podcast Network. I'm Michael Rothman, Editor-in-Chief and President of Consequence of Sound, and I'm here with my co-hosts... Randall Colburn, the rockin' one. And Mackenzie Gerber. Now, you could hear us pretty well, right? I think so. That's yes. because we're recording from a studio here in Chicago, Illinois. That wasn't always the case, though. When we started this podcast, we were actually huddled around an old Yeti microphone in Mac's apartment that he doesn't even live in anymore. That's right. And there were not four or three of us. There were like six or seven. So we wanted to go back to our older episodes and make sure that you, constant listener, actually have a good grasp on knowing that this is not how it's always going to sound. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's a very rough quality, and we just happen to have that rough quality over Stephen King's most iconic books. So Yeah, it's rough. But I'd say, yeah, I'd, for Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Rage, and The Stand, I believe. Night Shift, too. And, and Night, Night Shift. Shift. Yeah. We recorded those episodes in a very sort of primitive way, um, doing our best. That was before we got our studio, which makes us sound so lovely. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so you'll notice that the audio quality is going to be a little bit not up to par, but... 
I'd say the content of the conversations are still very, very good. I'm very proud of the analysis we did. You'll notice a few other changes too, like um, in these early episodes, we talk about everything. Everything. Yeah, we didn't like, now we stretch our legs a bit. We do separate episodes for the movies, for other things. And for here, we're basically like, let's talk about all the Stephen King news, as well as the book, as well as the films, as well as the plays, as well as everything. So these episodes run long. Um, well, I mean, a lot of ours do, but these run extra long because we're talking about those things. And you'll also notice that kind of the way that we break down our conversations now is a little bit different. We refine that over time. Yeah. So, so yeah, you'll notice that it's a little bit rougher, but it's the same quality Losers Club content and that these, you've always wanted. These episodes nearly killed us. Uh, the yeah. Night Shift episode, I got the flu because we recorded... For everything we recorded for 11 hours straight yeah I think. two yeah. episodes back to back covering all, all what 20 stories all 20 stories and, and the, the movies and the movies Oof. it was exhausting i was i think towards the end of the episode i started fading away dan started uh, crying dan started crying <laughs> i cried in the shining episode i believe yeah uh, so yeah th- th- these episodes are special they're very good episodes. they're very special episodes but we did want to make sure that you didn't go into the this podcast thinking that it's going to sound like this forever <laughs> because obviously as you could hear from us right now, that's just not the case. Yeah, if you're just popping in to hear like, oh, I love Salem's Lot. I'm going to check out this new podcast. Why does it sound like they're recording underwater? You know, we just never really thought that. Uh, I, I think that, you know, we were testing things out. We were yeah. seeing if anybody would even care if we did this podcast. And luckily, a lot of you guys did care. And you listened and supported us and followed us on social media. And so we were able to, you know, beef up the sound, make things sound better, expand our lineup and refine the way that we do things uh, as it is now. So. Because so much has changed mm-hmm. since 2017, not only with us, but the whole world at large and you're going to hear about all of it as you're journeying through each one of these episodes so why don't we let you take your bagged lunch and your old warm cup of coffee and enjoy a long 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 night shift This is part two of our Night Shift series of episodes. Obviously, this is the uh, short Stephen King's first short story collection. Um, two weeks ago, we talked about uh, our 10 least favorite stories in Night Shift. Now we're going to talk about our 10 favorite stories in Night Shift. And in the next episode, we're going to be talking about the various adaptations. Uh, there's so many, we need to devote an entire episode to it. And they're all great. <laughs> Just kidding. When we say least favorite, let's be clear, some of them were pretty good. Yeah, no, no, no. There was a lot. This is a very strong collection. If I'm being blunt, um, some of the film notations for this were some of the worst things, (laughs) atrocities committed to celluloid of all time. Um, Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, As always, we really appreciate your engagement. We love your reviews on iTunes. That stuff really helps us. So if you haven't left us a review yet, and if you really like us and you don't think our episodes are too long, then um, (laughs) then please leave us a review. Shots fired. That, by the way, is what the children call shade. (laughs) The shade of it all. Um, Okay, so uh, before we get started, I'd love for us to just go around. Usually this is the point where we talk about sort of how we first encountered Night Shift, but we did that last episode. So if you are really, really aching to know uh, what it was like when I got light night shift from the local library, then please go back to that episode. But again, my name is Randall Colburn. I'm a senior staff writer at Consequence of Sound. 
My name is Allison Shoemaker. I'm a staff writer at Consequence of Sound, and my favorite kind of corn is corn on the cob. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, all right. Uh, my name is Dan Caffrey. I'm a senior staff writer at Consequence of Sound. Uh, I'm going to say I like it when they do that. Uh, you know, sometimes you go to restaurants, there'll be like a roast corn and black bean mix. It's like a kind Ooh. of roast, like some Ooh, nice. cracked red pepper in there. Kind of like Morrison's Cafeteria used to do that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's my favorite kind of corn. Deep breath. Well, I'm Justin Gerber, also <laughs> staff writer at Consequence of Sound and co-host of Gerber and Gerber uh, YouTube video series. Uh, my favorite corn is probably Children of the Corn 2, Urban Sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> if that's not, the second one? If is not, um, Children of the Corn 666, um, Isaac's Return. Wait, so, wait, is it really called Urban Sacrifice? Urban Harvest? Urban Harvest. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's backtrack. Children of the Corn 2, The Final Sacrifice, <laughs> and Children of the Corn 3, Urban Harvest. Oh my god, I love that it's urban. Uh, and I am the other half of Gerber and Gerber, <laughs> Mackenzie Gerber, and uh, my uh, favorite kind of corn is uh, candy corn. I'm a little real <laughs> That is true. Uh, you, you ate uh, half a bag of candy corn in my house uh, two weeks ago. We don't have to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> Off-season candy corn. Um, my name is uh, Michael Rothman. I'm uh, editor-in-chief of uh, Consequences Sound, and if, it, if you want to get me uh, to do anything in the world... You gotta give me some cornbread. I <laughs> oh, yeah. love cornbread so much. I would say uh, my favorite corn is any that has been uh, uh, pulled out of someone's torn out eye sockets. Ooh, um, whoa. Sorry, that's like. That would have been a good segue later on. I know. That image literally stuck with me throughout. That was like the scariest shit when Ooh. I did. How do you feel about Jonathan Davis's corn? Uh, I actually really like "Got the Life" still. To what that about song? What about John the Davis's Garfield? Uh, <laughs> or is that Jim Davis? That's Jim Davis. Davis. And Never now mind. we've gone. Yeah, we've gone too uh, All right, let's So get as it. I said, uh, we're going to be discussing the top ten stories in our opinion. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shift. But before we do that, we're going to talk about some of the latest Stephen King, the hot takes, the new news uh, in a little section we call "Needful Tweets." <laughs> He's not a human being. No! Don't you see what he's done? Please kill them all. Let God sort them out. Oh, we've got some great updates this time around. Uh, King, uh, you know, he's been fairly laid back as of late, so... Uh, what he's been doing is uh, he's been enjoying some scary zombies of The Walking Dead. Uh, he particularly called out Melissa McBride's performance as Carol. Um, and the best thing is that he's been shaking the house with a little rhino bucket. And uh, Steve, I'd like to suggest a, a rhino bucket track. And it's uh, called Ride With Yourself. And it's off the Wayne's World soundtrack, which uh, just celebrated its 25th anniversary uh, back in February. Um, if you haven't heard that song, uh, please do. It's... Uh, Hands down, the band's best track, and uh, it's not just because I grew up with soundtracks. I, I actually do think it's the their best song, and it's got like an ACDC vibe. You'd love it. It, it fit right into Maximum Overdrive Part Two. Um, <laughs> Can't wait for Maximum Overdrive Part Two. I know. Mike, I think there's also some articles on Wayne's World that were recently written and posted on Consequence of Sound. Oh yeah, right? we did have some. Yeah, um, check that out. <laughs> my, my fellow colleague uh, Matt Mellis uh, and I wrote some uh, cool articles. Is that, was that, is that a shameless plug if I had nothing to do with those articles? <laughs> yeah, it's a very... It's not a shameless plug. No, it's, it's a nice plug. it's more like a, hey, check it out. Oh, that's a nice plug. Yeah, there you well, go. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, speaking of rock and roll, uh, King happened to throw some shade at The Who on March 15th, writing, Remember when The Who sang Hope I Die Before I Get Old? They are now scheduled to play an extended gig in Vegas. It's pretty... Uh, pretty... Pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. To be fair, though, I think Britney Spears had a residency out there, too. Oh, yeah, so. she did. Yeah, but she didn't talk about dying young. 
That's true. That's well, not, she yeah. almost died young. She, yeah, she did. Remember <laughs> when she was? Remember she was going crazy. She was kind of a king character in herself for a little bit. Yeah, I would you know? agree. She had that song crazy as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Randall. Randall, you were a big Britney fan, right? Oh. Oh. Okay. Guess not. It must have been Aguilera yeah, fan. I guess uh, it was a different time. Um. Ow. Anyway. Um. Speaking of death, and uh, this is not to. This is the probably the worst seg I could possibly <laughs> oh, ever go into. Uh, yeah. But uh, King uh, paid some respects to rock and roll legend Chuck Berry this week, uh, writing: "Chuck Berry died. This breaks my heart. But 90 years old ain't bad for rock and roll. Johnny be good forever." Uh, today he posted up a follow. Uh, he followed up with a tribute, which he said: uh, "Anthony Boy by Chuck Berry." A little act of genius, the only song in rock history to rhyme school with vestibule. It's nice. What did you? What was your favorite uh, um, Chuck Berry track? What was that song in, in um, Back to the Future? <laughs> oh, Johnny Be Good. Yeah. <laughs> I think I like the. I think I, I like that other song that like people always cover. Um, Which one's that? Um, I think it's Johnny Be Good. I feel good. No, that's oh, that's. Yeah. Uh, Hey, he invented rock and roll, though. So, he did um, invent rock, rock and roll. So, and uh, and there's a lot of uh, great videos you can find of him on YouTube. Uh, sadly, Barry wasn't the only artist he paid tribute to this week. At 68 years of age, Bernie Wrightson mm. also passed away, succumbing to a battle with brain cancer. King called him a good friend and a great collaborator, adding that he'll miss him. Fans similarly lamented his loss, sharing his countless contributions to the King lore, from his work on Creepshow to his illustrations behind Cycle of the Werewolf. He also did the restored uh, stand um, illustrations. And uh, he did some artwork for Wolves of Kala. Yeah. Um, you know, I just reread that. We're all re- well, I, we either recently reread the standard reading for the first time, and those illustrations add a whole new yeah. dimension to the book. It's not like they're on every other page either. Yeah. There's maybe about a dozen or so, but, but you know, between that and obviously, we'll be talking about Cycle of the Werewolf in a few months. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a it's a sad it's a sad day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just. Uh, windows do punctuate the book uh it really brings something else to it i like the sweet treat that, oh that's uh, my favorite that's like oh, the grossest one. Oh. Yeah, look up the sweet treat folks uh, but we'll be posting a bunch of his artwork on our socials throughout the month so um you know to pay tribute to the legend um but to counter the dark with the light as king is wont to do with his own novels uh, he kept everyone's spirits high, naturally, with more photos of his terrible, awful, no good, bad, bad dog, <laughs> Molly, the thing of evil. I don't know about you, but that creature, it's like Cujo with a school bus body. Just <laughs> terrifying, disgusting, gross. No, I'm just joking. I uh, absolutely love corgis, and um, <laughs> that will be my all-time icebreaker with uh, King if I ever get a chance to actually talk to him again. I did meet him once, and I shook his hand, and I totally bombed and said the dumbest thing to him. What, did you, say, what did you say to him? I said something like, thanks for giving me nightmares. I thought you were saying, like, I thought you were saying, like, oh, that's all about that. <laughs> what, 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 it sounds like, you sound like, you was, you're welcome, asshole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you sound like Robert England talking to him. Yeah, <laughs> right? Ready. Yeah, right? <laughs> thanks for giving me nightmares. Yeah. I, uh, I also had like a red and you know Who green stripe. Yeah, he was probably <laughs> he was um he just looked at me probably like I've heard this a thousand times you fucking uninspired idiot like um, you hack you hack that's great the next time you actually say to him hey it's great to see you I really love your dog yeah what a great end yeah that's that's gonna be a good end I know finally somebody Dan, likes his corgi Dan I, Dan you uh, you met Stephen King right uh, once too right what did he say to you. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Let's move doesn't on. Wanna, doesn't want to share All with right. it. That's fine. Um, do we have anything else we want to cover? 
Yeah. Um, this is going back to Stephen King's tweet that you mentioned in the last episode, Mike, where he says, you know, never to use the expressions for some reason or for a long moment. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually guess. he later confessed that he has used for a long moment. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he gets it from those meaningful glances in the movies. But he does say, for some reason, never. One of our uh, constant listeners Ooh. found an example of Uncle Stevie breaking his rule. And, it's in the, and it comes in, um, it's from Jerusalem's Lot. Oh. And here's the uh, sentence. And this is from... Which is what we're, we've been covering we want thank, So we want to thank John for, for, for giving us this uh, little, little tidbit here. Uh, here we go. He grins and whispers, and for some reason of his own has begun to haunt our cellar when not in Jerusalem's lot. So uh, I know it's an early story. Maybe Uncle Stevie forgot, but uh, it's right well, there. To quote Conan, looks like we made uh, chump meat out of the maestro. Good night. Now let's talk about, uh, let's head into our number 10 entry in our top 10. And um, guess what? It's a prequel to a book we've already discussed. And it's not called Salem's Lot. It's called Jerusalem's Lot. Um, the curious thing about Jerusalem's Lot is that we've all talked about how when we, those of us who have read the Night Shift when we were younger, Jer- Jerusalem, I can't say it, Jerusalem's Lot was always a hard one to get through. I mean, it's in, you know 19th century, I believe. It's written in a very <coughs> archaic uh, type of prose. It's a... Uh, is it a postulatory novel, epistolatory, where it's all written in letters, so it's very heady. Um, and it's a very ballsy way to start off the collection. It's easily yeah. the hardest story to read just in terms of form. Um, I didn't always appreciate it when I was younger, but however, reading it this time around, I loved it. Um, I love the Dracula influence just with the way of how it's written, like it's all through letters. I love this idea that it establishes Jerusalem's lot, which is not where all the story takes place. Um, the main character is actually in a... a house called chapel Wait that's in near a town called preacher's corners and jerusalem's lot is like through the woods but i love this idea of we've already been introduced to it through salem's lot right mm-hmm. i mean it's vampires and, and this or that and I, I love this idea of establishing this town not even through vampires i mean there's two that you kind of see at a certain point in the house but for the most they part they mentioned Masferatu they do yeah which is just like you know a term for the undead um but you know you could argue whether or not that's a hallucination of the main character you know his dead relatives what I really love about this story is that it establish, establishes Jerusalem's lot as just being a community that attracts evil no matter what. And that is super scary to me. And that really relates to this idea of Stephen King just building these these very just insidious worlds. I mean, it, it, honestly, the story owes more really to Lovecraft than it does to Dracula in terms of the type mm-hmm. of evil they're, they're um that the guy's relative is inviting into this it's church. It's a big worm. It's a big worm, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, this cosmic entity... And so I just, I just I just love what this story does. I, I mean, I, I think it was one of the first instances of Stephen King revisiting somewhere he's gone before. And I love that he did it. It wasn't, hey, you know what? I'm going to show that there are vampires here hundreds of years mm-hmm. ago. It was more like, no, this this guy opened a portal to this thing that just made this town a magnet for evil. And that just really got under my skin. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, the first of four we're going to cover in this episode that were written, that were not, that were not previously published mm-hmm. in anything else like Cavalier or Playboy or anything like that. Um, but again, it touched upon what Salem's Lot's all about. Because Salem's Lot has always been evil, even mm-hmm. before vampires show up. We established that. And then we definitely get down to it with this, the whole the whole warm aspect in, in Jerusalem's Lot. But what was also interesting is that Boone's bloodline also has had a twinge of evil to it as well. Yeah, Saint Worship. And it has nothing necessarily <clears throat> to do with Salem's Lot, so I thought the whole 
thing of evil always lingering was an interesting theme as well. I like the introduction of the the mysteries of the worm, mm-hmm. uh, just that whole thing. Where I mean, we see like similar themes in in like Hellboy, yeah, like the definitely. Conqueror Worm, mm-hmm. or uh, vampires that are associated with parasitic worms, like in Le- FX's The Strain, Lair of the White and, Worm. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> FX's so The Strain. I, I love, <laughs> yeah, I love how they, they they do that, and I also like how this is kind of a return to the writing style from Carrie, where it's all diary entries yeah. and letters. Is it epistolatory? Um, Am I saying that right? Like apostolatory? It's there's certain. Don't answer. Just let him yeah, sure. suffer yeah. with this for the, for the rest of the podcast. So I can see you just battling this in your head right what now. What is it? <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, to the letter thing, I love the letter thing. I, I think this is, it's definitely his homage to Lovecraft. Um, I mean, this, this is just pure Lovecraft. Down Cosmic to, horror. Down to the, 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 the style, the setting, to the the horror that's mm-hmm. in there. I mean, like Lovecraft is, you know, the the whole Cthulhu thing. Granted, the worm isn't that, but it's that huge, yeah, irrationally large, unthinkable beast that has almost psychic kind of controls in a weird yeah. way. Like I it hypnotizes people. Yeah, in yeah, and, and and the way that the letters go back and forth, and 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 the style of the, that kind of upper class. Yeah, weird, like like thing. It just felt like he. This is him, you know, you hear about, like, songwriters uh, trying on, like, different um, styles that have been in the past. Like, you know, like, Ryan Adams recently just definitely waxed into a little bit of Springsteen. He did Tom um, Petty before that. He did that. some Tom yeah. Petty and stuff like that. This is definitely him, like, being like, I'm gonna, you know, one of my favorite authors is Lovecraft. I'm gonna fucking do a, lo- a Lovecraft yeah. story. And, well, like, that is, that, I mean, this, this is a Lovecraft story. Like, it's a modern Lovecraft, it's, like, written in the modern vice of, of, a, of what Lovecraft did, which is the... You know, the big letters and the weird, creepy gothic Blue stuff. blood uh, families yes. by the sea dealing with evil. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I think, like, what I really like about Night Shift as a whole that Jerusalem's lot really kind of displays is how Stephen King wasn't really Stephen King yet when mm-hmm. he wrote these. He, you know, he wasn't identified by a specific style. And as good as some of his later books are, I think there is the sense that there was a specific voice that he had settled yeah. into, and that's what the, his publishers were looking for and things of that nature. There's so much experimentation in this book that yeah. I don't even know if we see in Skeleton Crew and Nightmares and Dreamscapes as much because he was a young writer when he was doing these. And so you see the influence of the people that he grew up reading so vividly in these, and that's what I really love about Jerusalem's lot. Well, yeah, and, and you know, with the Lovecraft connection here, and something I noticed this time reading Night Shift was he talks about criminals a lot. And as we know from later on with um, you know, Joy Lan, the Colorado kid, uh, King does like a, a hard-boiled crime story, you know, and that pops up in Quitter, uh, Quitter's Inc., the, you know, the Ledge. The and, Ledge, for sure. Um, and then we had talked before about Battleground being this kind of action movie, and then, you know, stuff like Graveyard Shift and, and The Mangler just being gruesome. And there's certainly gruesome things in Jerusalem's lot, but yeah, it's, it's very much like a literary exercise. And I don't know, I can't, you know, we, we read this, I read this book, um, in some cases 20 years after it came out in some cases almost 40 years after it came out and I, I just love that like I wonder if I if I was a Stephen King fan if I had just read those first three four books whatever and I had gotten this short story collection and I opened it up to Jerusalem's lot it would feel like such a fresh thing to me mm-hmm. it's like weird because he is imitating this other writer like you said it's very much his Lovecraft bid but if I was just a King fan reading that I would be like man this is unlike like by imitating this one guy he has this story that is mm-hmm. unlike anything else he's ever written and I I love that there's never... I mean, this is one of the few stories in here where he doesn't have to over-explain everything. Maybe that's because it's told in this journal form. I mean, we get that um, Boone's relatives, the one Philip, I think, was a 
a Satanist and kind of mixed being a preacher with being a, a devil worshiper and summoned this this thing, but he never really bothers to explain too much about the exact effect the worm has um, other than just spreading evil, and I just love that. There's something I really love, too, that makes me think of Edgar Allan Poe. Yes. Where yes. Because you're existing through... You're seeing this all through these letters and texts. It's all first-person reminiscence, mm. and you sense the mounting horror, and it dips into this grandiose language... It, it just feels very much of a time, and it's not the time in which it was written, mm -hmm. but as opposed to capturing, like, the greasers or the yeah. romance of the <laughs> yeah. 60s, you really all of a sudden feel like it, yeah. can, it could be fucking that House of Usher could be in Jerusalem's lot, you yeah. know? It just feels like that would make sense. Here's a question, though. Does it need to be called Jerusalem's Lot? Does it need to take place within the world of that book? Yeah, Does it need to be called 10 Cloverfield Lane? I don't know. Uh, I yeah. mean, I, I do like that just because it does hint at this world building that would be, or world connections that um, would be such an important part later on. I feel like it's just like a nice Easter egg. I mean, it is kind of weird, like we were saying before. The house isn't, it's not even in Jerusalem's Lot, and it's not the Marson house. And the easy move, I think, would have just had it been the Marston house, yeah. and that's just been a house that's been there forever because we already know that that's this like place that attracts evil. Um, but I don't know. I kind I kind of like that. My my one thing, just in terms of structure, I do love the night shift ends with the woman in the room because it's it's great. But I think it would still be cool if it starts with the Salem's Lot prequel, Jerusalem's Lot, and then it ends with One for the Road, I which I think agree. is the second to last story. It's one of the last ones. I, I know, think it's I the penultimate story. It's so I, story. I I almost I almost wish he would have like owned up to that. Um, that sort of bookending structure a little bit more. Again, does it need to take place at Jerusalem's lot? <laughs> Ultimately, no. Yeah. Um, Am I glad it does? It's funny yeah. because <clears throat> thinking back before I sat down to reread this again recently, I did think that he was writing from the Marston house. I totally yeah. forgot mm. that it wasn't even yeah. in Salem's lot. Yeah, they didn't even mention the... I mean, I guess it's there, but they don't mention the Marston house at all. Well, they don't because no, Hugh Marston, Marston house was way before, yeah. for the was way well, before it, that, yeah. Is it weird, too... Um, at first, this was sort of a problem for me when I read it, but I'm thinking back. I'm like, no, it's kind of neat. So at the end of Salem's Lot, and as we hear more about in One for the Road, Ben Mears and Mark Petrie, they, they go back and they torch the town, right? Yeah. Like, the idea is that this town is dead, even though there's some lingering vampires. Mm -hmm. Like, the, the evil came to the town. It cycled everything out. It's done. Blah, blah, blah. Now, when they come across uh, Jer Jerusalem's Lot in this book, or in this story... And this story it, that we're talking about, yeah, it's abandoned. Like it's it's had an instance of that yeah. already. Like so, like when when Philip uh, I, Philip Boone, I guess, did this ritual. I mean, essentially wiped out everyone in the town. So it's kind of it's it's weird for them to stumble across the town, and it's already a ghost uh, a ghost town. You know, and as I was wandering through Jerusalem's lot, I was looking for an exit, and then I heard a voice cry. <laughs> I am the doorway, <laughs> and that leads Good us to Lord. that leads us to our number nine, <laughs> number nine. Uh, favorite story in Night Shift, which is I am the doorway, which is a, a, a story that personally, even though it constituted the cover art for a lot of the early editions, was a story that I had in many ways forgotten personally. So had I. Yeah, um, this is the first story that really hit me hard. And it's actually my number one personally night shift story. Uh, it follows Arthur. Uh, I wrote Arthur the astronaut, uh, <laughs> <laughs> who uh, explains to a friend that after participating in a manned Venus flyby, that he was exposed to an extraterrestrial contagion that slowly takes him over, and makes him do terrible things. That's really summing it up. Um, the infection results in tiny eyes that cover his hands 
and he can simultaneously see through these alien eyes, and it's a doorway uh, <laughs> that... He is the doorway. He sees humans uh, through these alien eyes and sees that they're these monstrosities, and, uh, and that's, yeah, they that's, make him... That's my favorite part. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's terrifying uh, that his own reflection scares himself because he sees what they see. Yeah. And um, to try to maintain his his uh, humanity and, and not murder people via the alien uh, you know, presence in his being, uh, he ends up dousing his hands in, in uh, kerosene and lights them on fire. Thinks that it goes away, doesn't quite go away, maybe for like several years, and then uh, the ending of this book, which oh, is just ugh. horrifying. Uh, I think it's page 114, if uh, someone can find it. Uh, I just love them, for them to read that that last uh, couple of lines. Well, sure, Mac, I'll read it. <laughs> <laughs> I get along fine. Just I get along just fine with these hooks. That's right. He's got hooks instead of hands because he cut off his hands. It's like kingpin. Hey, oh god. There was terrible pain for the first year or so, but the human body can adjust to almost anything. I shave with them, and I even tie my own shoelaces. And as you can see, my typing is nice and even. I don't even expect to have any trouble putting the shotgun into my mouth or pulling the trigger. <laughs> it started again three weeks ago, you see. There was a perfect circle of 12 golden eyes on my chest. That's so eerie. Yeah. Yeah. Another great, great scary story in there. Yeah. Something we don't think about a lot when it comes to alien science fiction is specifically how they see us. I mean, you have something like Independence Day or whatever, and we, we know they're a threat and they want to attack us, but... I, there are very few stories that actually play with this idea of how they actually see us as organisms. Under the Skin does it, maybe a couple other, other things, but what was so terrifying, like you were saying, Mac, uh, to me is that he, he is seeing through the eyes of this other being, seeing himself as something foreign and frightening that needs to be killed right away. I mean, to the point where he ends up exploding the head of a little boy he encounters um, with, what, the flick of his hand or something. And it's also terrifying to see I, I love Stephen King's stories where it's a ultimately good person trying to struggle against this thing inflicted upon them, and I love seeing him struggle against it and failing in some ways because he does end up murdering someone, but then also doing the right thing at the end by presumably uh, shooting himself if, if if the being in his body lets him. Do well, that. I think a big theme here is you know fear of the other, mm-hmm. and now we're looking at it from the quote unquote the other's <clears throat> perspective too. Mm-hmm. And isn't this? I guess this would be. If you're reading, if you're reading it chronologically, this is the first sci-fi Stephen King yeah. story, right? Because everything else has been pretty much horror up until this point. Right? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, also, too, I, I will say, I, I mean, overall, I love this story. I love the imagery it plays with. I love the overall theme. It does rely a little bit too much, in my opinion, on the you know remember when monologue thing. Like, because yeah. his, his uh. friend makes him. He was like, well, tell me this story. And he's like, I've already told you this story. He's like, tell me again. Well, and then it goes <laughs> yeah. back to that thing. I mean, it's not quite as bad here because the tale of, of space travel is so compelling. It's not like in Rage where it's like, ah, like, well, I'll tell you about me getting <laughs> shat on it. Well, I'll party. tell you. Yeah, but um, so that, that did bug me a little bit just because that happens in a couple other stories here. But, I mean, narratively, out, outside of that, and that's just in the first few pages, it's great, and I just I love it as as a piece of science fiction. Tyson, I think this is... <clears throat> one of the best body horror yes pieces. oh yeah because the idea like I have I I, I trypophobia is a, is oh, a yeah. real thing and you I hate actually, it I, I hate it <laughs> which is which is the this the fear of like little tiny holes all over your skin indentations tiny holes in general yeah um, and I didn't actually know that was a real thing until like you know the internet um, and then you know it started taking off online and so 10 years ago when I read this I remember just being like really grossed out 
about this uh, story, just the idea of these like little holes with eyes like appearing on your on your skin. And now rereading this with knowing what trypophobia <laughs> and all it is, and it's like just one thing that I can never shake. Like I've tried to like you know, there's some fears that I've had in the past that you could ever like overcome, but like just this bizarre feeling of like the little holes and just mm. a lot of people say that that fear is this this your this feeling of like you're gonna fall into it or you're gonna be mm-hmm. it's like the minute the you're gonna be trapped or it's it's that that terror of um you know just the the being tripped into something that that you don't really know like a like a portal of sorts um i don't really feel that with the the, the tiny holes i think it's more of just the the idea of just seeing like little like things it's like pockets something erupt on you yeah yeah but with this i can only imagine this story sets those triggers off big time because they are portals and they're going to these you know these it's just basically surveillance Mm -hmm. um which made me wonder if under the dome isn't somewhat oh. tied to this because they are aliens looking in that this whole time spoiler oh, alert man I never thought about you know, that that's really that's that's super cool actually yeah, I had, that had it's not a reach to me. but you know he doesn't do a lot of alien stuff no no so, yeah, yeah you know? I'm, I'm very I, and you know I think there's something really freaky to me in terms of sci-fi horror like uh, the idea of going to space and bringing something back with you yeah. is a very spooky idea to me yeah mm-hmm. and he doesn't even go I mean you can't go on Venus because it's all it's mostly gas he doesn't even like go into it right yeah. it's just the idea that by by passing it something gets inside and I remember too one of the lines I actually I've never done anything with I adapted this into a short play a long time ago that I've never it's never been produced but like so I poured over this text pretty uh, pretty intensely at one point and the line that always struck really struck me and still creeps me out is he talks about the planet as feeling like orbiting a haunted house floating in space and that just always freaked me out Mm -hmm. uh, like just that once again the cosmic horror type thing you know what this story reminded me of I know at least two people at the table will will get this reference is one of my favorite episodes of Doctor Who The Waters of Mars which is this the premise there whatever the doctor is in his blue box and he lands and that's the like the least important part of it until you get to the end but um the monster there is in the water Mm -hmm. that there's this water that they're supposed to be filtering but there is a tiny hole or flaw in the filtration and slowly because water has patience and water can wait it transforms these astronauts who are on mars into these vessels for this malevolent force that's basically just water so it's people their skin gets kind of dry and cracked like mud and water just leaks out of them but if even a little drop touches you you're done for Mm -hmm. and gradually they realize that they're all gonna have to just kill themselves they can't escape um and what actually happens i won't spoil for you because the ending is actually far more tragic even than that Mm. um but the idea that you go somewhere unknown for the purposes of discovery, but then you too are discovered, mm-hmm. and the yeah. repercussions of that—absolutely—I um, think it. I just really love this story. Well, and I think it hits hard today. I mean, yeah. with like the idea yeah. of the Patriot and everything, mm-hmm. like well, everybody so, just yeah. uses. I mean, like look at like I have tape that's over my my uh, um, on my camera on my laptop, so. Good luck, constant listeners. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, there is some, th- there's that fear that we're going to watch. Do you really have tape Yeah, I do. Yeah. I learned it from Mr. Robot. Um, Sam Ishmael. Um, but, um, auteur. Yeah, the auteur. Um, but <laughs> I, I think that's a constant fear that we have now is that we're constantly, yeah. we, we're always being watched. There's, there's, we are vessels to being shown this. It's, you know, I don't think it's, it's, it's a it's conspiracy to think that that everything is being recorded that everything can be heard you know i don't think that 
it's it's beyond you know reason. So I, I think that honestly, this, I think we're being recorded right D- now. Dean, Dean Koontz, <laughs> Dean Koontz is listening in. He's like, uh, well, he's like, why don't they do a podcast about me? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sitting there just like you know, he's sitting in the white van outside yeah. listening to us. He's like, I, um, I think you should do something on Watchers. <laughs> yeah, like, evil corpse listening in right now. Evil corpse. Oh, um, yeah. are they? Um, but. <laughs> You know, I, I think it takes on a different uh, level of uh, horror when you actually yeah. think of it in that range. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's that line right here. It's like um, on one page 110 on the uh, Anchor Books edition. Um, <laughs> Shout out Anchor Books. Uh, yeah. Uh, enough feedback to feel their blind hate, but still they watched. Their flesh was embedded in my own. I began to realize that they were using me, actually manipulating me. And I mean, yeah. that's. I think that takes on a new meaning today when... So I, it's an intense sci-fi thriller to give, to give you like the, the place that it's in. Yeah. However, I, I, the only thing that kind of the kind of um, I guess rankles you rankles me. Sure, we'll use rankles. Is the the lasers shooting out of his hands? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I just kept kind of picturing him kind of like giving like this intense expression and like pew 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 pew. pew Wait, is that how he blows up the kid's head? Pew, I thought he just wait, flicks no, his hand and it blows his, up. Um, I, I, yeah, I just he feel just feel like he's lasers. like. Making like a big presentation. That's, oh, that's how my that's how I view it happening. I guess you're right because he kill that's he kills the kid and I think like Heil Hitler. Or doesn't he kill the kid and then he shoots lasers and like a thunderstorm happens or something? Yeah, like yeah, that, that also happens too. Yeah. I I also too. Um, I know I keep bringing up this theme, but this is another story that I think um, could be related to the apocalypse coming to Earth. And ho- and once again, I think if he's able to, I think this guy does kill himself to stop it from spreading. But we're we're once again left at the possible beginnings of an outside force taking over as with trucks and great yeah. like a thing where it just spreads mm-hmm. to another person yeah I'm just freaky you know one of the things that I think is interesting is that all of this is a valid and compelling interpretation but you could also just think it's like cancer yeah, right? yeah. like your cells going to war with the rest of your body there's mm. something inside you that's fighting every decent normal um, healthy impulse that you have for survival uh, and I like how often does a story that also has moments that are kind of shitty, like the laser hands, manage to work on so many levels? Like yeah. you can think about just the central concept of this story and interpret it in any number of ways. Well, it's true. I mean, for, if you've got cancer in your brain, you remove a part of that brain, doesn't mean that you're not going to still, the cancer didn't spread already. So mm-hmm. that's what you're saying. Like just because he cuts off his hands. Or Phineas Gage. Doesn't mean a thing. Anyone? I love Phineas. Phineas Gage fans? I wanted to write a whole play about Phineas it's Gage once upon a time. Do you, any, you Phineas Gage, uh, a pipe went through his head. Railroad spike. Oh, a railroad spike went through his yeah. head, and it punctured his prefrontal cortex, and basically... Uh, of his brain, but he lived and um, survived later on. But his whole personality changed. He and that, became violent. Yeah, he mm-hmm. he went from being a nice, mild mannered dude to becoming like a violent asshole. And it was kind of where people. It was that led to a lot of studies that the prefrontal cortex, like that, was what kind of determined your personality in a lot of ways. And it was that the brain does control personality. Uh, that reminds me of a. Uh little uh, story in Body Bags with uh, Mark oh, Hamill in which he gets a new eye and I, becomes a crazy what is, maniac. What is Body Bags? Uh, an anthology. It's an anthology horror film uh, hosted by I think John, John Carpenter, Carpenter as, as like the creature. It's a spooky no. morgue no. It's uh, directed by Pastor Prime, John Carpenter and Pastor Prime, uh, Toby Hooper. <laughs> oh. I think the important thing is really that I was 100% convinced in every fiber of my being that you were going to say Boxcar Children and oh. <laughs> and that would have really been yeah. special. It's funny you bring that up because it does remind me of Boxcar Racers uh, video. <laughs> play Which, hey, with Tom with DeLonge, who loves aliens. Sci-fi, he he UFOs. aliens exist, and I agree right. with him. It all connects. Uh, 
the world is ending. And um, frankly, I Am the Doorway is a great story. But once we move beyond the doorway, I see... I see I see corn. I see a field. I see wheat. And I see children in the corn. Or maybe of the corn. Oh, boy. And that leads us to our number eight best story in Night Shift. <laughs> sorry. That's great. <laughs> Which is... Uh, These walks are getting longer and longer. I know. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. It's uh, Children of the Corn, um, which I think is probably the most... M- Infamous. Well, it's just that... It, it spawned an entire film series that has nothing almost to do with the story itself, which I think has obfuscated the story to a degree when the story itself is 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 pretty it's wonderful. It's um yeah, it's funny because the the version I currently have at my house uh, of Night Shift, I don't remember where I got it. What is the like nineteen eighty seven or whatever it is uh, tie in Children of the Corn version? And, you know, that image of, like, the, the kid with the slightly bent elbow with the, the sickle just, I think, has become associated with it because the the movie... I mean, it's absurd how many of them there are, right? Yeah. You know? And, like you said, it's a shame because this is one of my favorite stories in here. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it works so well because I think a common, a common flaw we've all brought up amongst all these stories is the uh, reveal of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, Night Shift, as great as it is, it, it's a lot of characters relying on monologues, um these kind of ham-fisted memories to reveal things. What I love about Children of the Corn, we'll talk about this more in the adaptation episode because none of the movies do this, is that, you know, it's this young bickering couple driving across country to try and save their marriage. They go past this town called Gatlin, Nebraska. This kid runs out of the corn with a slit throat and they accidentally hit him. And they're trying to do the right thing by turning him to the authorities. And they, of course, stumble across this town where all the children have murdered the adults in the name of this deity called He Who Walks Behind the Rose, which is essentially a paganistic take on Christianity as it relates to corn in Nebraska. Now that sounds like a lot, but the beauty of the story is that it it unfolds bit by bit. The main yeah. character, Bert, he's finding clues. He finds a church with a Jesus that has like corn as hair and is has is green and is smiling. He um, finds these diary entries. Like it it unfolds in this way that's so chilling and by the time he realizes what happened in this town and what is really going on, it's too late. And that's something that none of the movies do, obviously. They show right off the bat all the kids massacring the adults. And, um, yeah, I, th- I think, Randall, what you said is right on point. Like, this story, because of its kind of silly title and these movies, it's really gotten underrated, I think. Yeah. But it is so creepy, and I think out of all, all the stories in Night Shift, it's my favorite in terms of how King reveals everything. Well, I th- this is why there are so many sequels mm-hmm. and, and whatever. It's because if you look at the actual, like, story itself... yeah. It comprises of the first twenty five minutes of a war. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it's they get to the town and it's pretty much done. Yeah. Like it's like they they have you know they get to the town. He goes into the into the church and once once she comes out, they've already like taken the wife. She gets killed. You know, she yeah. gets killed. And then he like runs around for a little bit, but he's gone in in, in a you know in within moments also. Yeah. So it's really like it, it it's what I love about it um, that I can see a lot of people seeing as infuriating when they read the story is that we're so um attuned to these stories of just like the coming into this strange abandoned town and thinking that that's the beginning mm-hmm. but really the the story is is just this is that journey into the town and then yeah. the town just kills them like immediately so it's like you were expecting this further 
you know, uh, like this further massacre with all the kids and, or even longer story there. Or them surviving it, or yeah, whatever. Or them yeah, surviving and stuff. But it, it, it just takes that off immediately. And that's what's so frightening. They're just like, yeah. no, these idiots wandered through. And, and it does that thing that, um, I mean, the, even The Departed does this. I'm I, Not always, but sometimes I'm a big fan of in stories where they just kill the point of view characters we've been with yeah. the whole time. Yeah. And it suddenly just shifts to the, the yeah. villains and we see how the villains operate. Story ends and yeah. I love that. Well, it's like, in a weird way, this reminds me of Battleground uh, that mm. we discussed in the last episode, which was about toy soldiers coming, you know, becoming sentient and killing this man. And because I think the idea is that, you know, the implication is that, yeah, these are a bunch of kids. It's easy to overcome them. He even says how the fighting style is not like yeah, advanced. It's just, yeah, just kids. It's just that there's so many of them. Yeah. And like, and then clearly they're you know, they have a certain bloodlust because it's rooted in uh, faith or religion, whatever it is that they worship. And, you know, like when, you know, this one of the scariest scenes in the entirety of Night Shift for me is when the guy stumbles into a clearing and sees his wife's body with yeah, corn husks yeah. stabbed well, in her eye holes, yeah. you know? Yeah. That shit's horrifying. I mean, for me, listen, it's got the three things that horrify me. <laughs> you got the three C's. Children, terrifying. <laughs> Cults, love them. <laughs> But they're terrifying and corn. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you he hates vegetables. You crucifixion. Oh, I'm all, I'm all for crucifixion. <laughs> he hates, he hates yeah. vegetables. I love crucifixion. You do hate no, vegetables. No, but I do hate vegetables to be well, absolutely fair. Trade, I don't know. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> Actually, I don't mind corn, to be honest with you. I just, I just want to make my little joke. Kind of meaningless but I think. It just goes right through. Also, you. corn starts with a K, by the way. Oh, uh, something uh, is happening to me. We're in timeout. <laughs> the thing about this is also, I think we've, we're, go, we're grown so accustomed to children of the corn being all about those creepy children. Yeah. But again, this story, they don't pop up until the very, very end. Yeah. Isaac and is literally the, on the last like two pages. Yes. He's the main villain. And of, there is a power in not knowing what's going on at all. Have any of you read Suddenly Last Summer or seen the film, which is a slightly tamer adaptation? No. I don't think so. So it's this. If you if you like Children of the Corn, <laughs> you should try Suddenly Last Summer, which is a Tennessee Williams play that's a it's, it's oh, that's southern fine. gothic, feels vaguely romantic. There's a tortured heroine. And you think, oh, this is going someplace dark. But then all of a sudden, there are fucking cannibal children. Ooh. You just don't see it coming. And it is the best and very creepy and everyone should read it. It would only be creepier if it was happening in a cornfield. <laughs> I, I will definitely he, check that out. What if he took it? Uh, took off of that then. Like, he may awesome. have. I mean, his, his. I mean, I feel like most early Stephen King works really do riff on something already existing. It's um, not religious at all. Yeah. Oh, so um. I think it's. I think it's more just that um, murderous children are terrifying, yeah. and that's a yes. universal truth that we all acknowledge. Yeah. Um, because in this case, it's it's driven by sex and yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or, or even like Village of the Damned, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, oh, very the cuckoo. Yeah. Yeah. and like another thing too, uh, uh, throwing in the King's Dominion again. Um, I believe that Gatlin is neighboring to Henry for home. Yeah. Uh, also, the, there's another I creeper have, that I know you're going to say creep in the corn. Uh, and we're going to cover that in, in the stand, but, um, well, yeah. I, I was reading, um, the guardian, uh, was doing uh, King revisited. Oh, I, yeah, I read those. Yeah, yeah. And those were great. I was rereading the one on night shift and, uh, the guy was talking about, um, connecting children of the corn to the stand. And what he said was, he goes, now bear with me. Cause he knows this is a little bit much, but he said, Randall Flagg's most common pseudonym is Walter O'Dim. Uh, and then he says, he who walks behind the rose is a name given by the children. And it just so happens to include all the letters of the name Walter 
in order. Really? And so, and then also with the corn connection from, well, and the fact that it's near Hemingford home, mm-hmm, I yeah. think that, you know, obviously when he wrote it, I don't think he was thinking about it, but it's a fun sort that, of thing. That's, I mean, but, this is around the time when he was putting yeah. together the pieces for Stan, though. That's something I do wonder. Surf there. Because I did, you know, when, when yeah, looking up this point. story, upon rereading it, I, I did, I found a lot of, like, Stephen King wikis that just kind of said, oh yeah, he who walks behind the rose is Randall Flagg, but there was no confirmation of it but it was creepy to me I, in a weird way though I know this sounds funny saying this about, about Randall Flagg he who walks behind the rose almost feels more animalistic and malicious than, me, than, than Randall Flagg like, like yeah. Randall Flagg has no problem killing, killing kids or adults but there's something more calculated in what he does and I got the idea that he who walks behind the rose is more of like this more of like, an animal or a demon. This is sacrificial. Yeah, and that's exactly. not really Randall Flagg's style. I mean, Flagg likes to just kind of step forward and be in the middle of everything going on to begin with. He's not yeah. necessarily always... Yeah. He's, he's a manipulator. Like yeah. But uh, another strength here also I want to really point out is the fact that, with the exception of Isaac, who I guess is kind of an older teen, none of the kids talk. None of the kids have there any any like cute dialogue. You know, saying, <laughs> oh, hey, hey, daddy, we're gonna get you, mommy. You know that daddy, type of daddy. thing. And there's a strength in the silence of these characters that could have yeah. easily been broken if they had uttered anything, in my opinion. Yeah, the one kid just does the uh, the throat slit gesture and then gets That's killed. It, yeah. um, I um, one thing I just want to make sure we touched on before we we move on to the next story is that what I love about Children of the Corn is that yeah, creepy creepy corn kids or whatever creepy else, but. Kids. He Stephen King. I mean, if you if you put the pieces of the story together, he really does set up a pretty specific religious belief, as horrifying as it is. It's and it, and I think it does sort of play to this idea what happens when fanaticism goes wrong. Like if mm-hmm. you're the, if you're these kids in this town and you're raised to be these fundamentalist Christians, and that's like what you're is instilled in your brain from a very young age, and you see that there's this drought of corn all of a sudden. It, it kind of makes sense that they do what they do. I mean, it's very extreme, but like they take it and they they think that this will help things be fertile and help their community. And then they take all this imagery, this Christian imagery of the Old, Old Testament, right? Because they rip out the New Testament and they twist it to this into this like pagan sort of imagery. Which you know, anyone who studied the Bible or just religion in general knows that it's a pretty thin line between paganism, yeah. like pagan imagery and Christian imagery. Yeah. And it's just, it's very well thought out as far as being a religion goes. I mean, I think that, once again, those movies make it so crazy and silly. But one of my favorite things is that, like, you're like, no, Stephen King really, he really took the time to plot out why these kids did what they did, what exactly they believe, how that affects the community they they currently have, and, and of course, how it affects anyone who stumbles into it. Yeah, and I think it just says something, like you're saying, just about the idea of how easy it is to manipulate scripture Mm -hmm. to suit, um, you know, whatever it is that is deep in your heart, you know? I mean, that's sort of the thing about how, you know, religion in any sort of way can be perverted is is just the sense of that, you know, when you're dealing with a text that, you know, it's very, you know, just the way that we interpret literature in a million different ways. People interpret scripture and they interpret, uh, you know, um, religious ideals, like, in such specific ways that you can almost create a new religion out of it and yeah. still say that you are worshiping whatever this mm-hmm. God is. I was just, I thought it was pretty cool that he decided to um, wire in uh, Sherlock Holmes into uh, his main character. He was able to reduce the entire goddamn oh, mystery. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> of the pages. I, I was like, when he was going through and he was going through the dates, I kept going back going like, like, I felt like an idiot. I was just like, wait, where was he coming up with these What if he did name the character like, he, Holmes? It would maybe be cool, and I, and, I, and I still do praise its reveal of information, but once he gets that final step, it would still be cool if, like, 
we're left to deduce that, not him. Yeah. You know, he's just kind of, yeah. what's going on here? Yeah. Because that, yeah, because he does have that line about like, like oh maybe the, he's in may, maybe this person did this oh and then maybe your little buddies helped you and then I bet what happened is blah, blah, blah. I mean, he, he yeah. sees a bunch of dates and he deduces that it's the parents were killed in this part there only had to be which by the way nineteen um, was is this oh I didn't realize yeah that. that's a good so, point yeah. um, there's the the number again uh, but it, that that just again it goes into that whole thing where it's just it's it's very perfunctory like i hate using that word all the time but it, it that that like white when i got to that i was just like oh god like it's just so simple like it's so easy it doesn't there's no there's no work that involved into getting that knowledge it's just like oh a book i'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> maybe i'm the greatest accountant in the world i'm gonna deduce that mike hated children of the corn <laughs> no i didn't hate it i like I, I like it that was the only part that I thought that was, that's the only yeah he's rushed have you ever i mean have, like I can't even go somewhere with my wife sometimes without like being like, all right, we're, we're almost at, we're almost out of here. Like we're, you know, like and she's <laughs> screaming outside. Like, can we go? And you're gonna like have that in your head. And you're. I mean, he does hate her though. They establish <laughs> that they're both like pretty awful people. Yeah, which is pretty, pretty shitty. shitty. Yeah, no, Man, but there's like, so many shitty characters in this. In this in whole night shift, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of there's a lot going on for him to solve this in his head. Like, <laughs> no, that's true. That's, 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 that was there's my also point, like but, a demon in the corn, you know. I yeah, know. no, I get it. But final. <laughs> Final thoughts on Children of the Corn. Anybody? Can we play the the corn? There is a corn song called Children of the Corn. That is it really? Oh, I didn't know that. Featuring Ice Cube. Oh dear, we're moving on. Um, well, we're gonna move on from the the open prairies and the pastures of uh, of the wheat fields to just a single room, and in that room is a woman. The woman in the room. That is our number seven story. Uh, in a lucky our top number ten. seven. The lucky, with an unlucky, <laughs> with an unlucky ending. Yeah, we're gonna, uh, yeah. This is gonna we're gonna keep this as lighthearted as humanly yeah, possible. Yeah, this is yeah. a, um, it's a yeah. tough one. Um, this is, I guess, I think we all agree. This is one of the two dramas that's mm-hmm. found in Night Shift. This and we'll be talking about the last run and the ladder later on. No supernatural elements. No supernatural. No, no genre elements. Even really, really. it's just yeah. a straightforward human drama, um, and both yeah. done exceptionally well, in my opinion. Uh, this one has to do with a man who has to decide whether or not to end the life of his mother, who's you know slowly fading away in the hospital. She's in pain all the time, and that's really just the main thrust of the, of the of the short story. I mean, there's no crazy twist that really happens. It's about this this person trying to figure out: Can I end mm-hmm. my mother, even if it means ending her pain? Can I do it? Yeah, and King said that this was his way of working through his mother's death was mm-hmm. um, was writing this story. So obviously, I think that uh, you know there's a lot of heart to this story, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of um, reverence to this story. I think you know he wasn't yeah. trying to make something that was that was uh, you know exploitive or nasty or mean. Like this is a really heartfelt story about how hard it is to lose somebody and how. You know, I mean, you know, this is almost the inverse of the idea of like trying to bring someone back from the dead. Like we talked about, like with, you know, like with Pet Cemetery, but then also uh, we talked about it with Sometimes They Come Back. That idea of trying to bring somebody back from the dead inevitably, you know, kind of ruins, can, you know, can ruin the idea, the person, the spirit, whatever. And here it's sort of like maybe you can better preserve the person that you knew mm-hmm. by uh, uh, relieving their pain. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. I mean, Thinking about, I read this for the first time, I guess, about 20 years ago, um, probably 14, 15 years old at the time, and was very moved throughout the entire mm-hmm. the story. It's a very sad story about, again, this man is losing his mother to this, <clears throat> the worst disease you can have. And so I loved it then, and then, not to get too sad and personal here, but my mother passed away from cancer about 10 years after I read this. And 
so much of it was the same. You know, you, you would walk, Mac, you can probably speak to this too, obviously. I mean, yeah. you can walk into the room and, you know, your mother's lying there in pain, but there's nothing you can really do about it. And they describe that feeling of helplessness so well in this, so well, about feeling, just not being able to do anything and having that helpless, I keep repeating it, but that's just the ultimate feeling you keep feeling over and over again. You know, my mother's in pain, there's nothing I can do. And so then, now reading it again, you know, obviously I've got a whole new perspective of it and, the, and how he nails it is really, it's incredible to me how, yeah. how, how well he nails the whole no, feeling. and I totally agree. And uh, reading this one was hard. Um, I mean, obviously the outcome is different from our outcome, yeah. um, but yeah. I, I will say uh, it definitely it definitely hit me hit me really really hard. I think uh, it, I actually didn't like it at first because I feel like it was kind of putting me in a place <laughs> I didn't want to be. But then you know yeah. you step away from it, you go, oh, wow, it's actually a, a really beautiful story, and, well, you- and it's it's a really Tough one. I was gonna say. I mean, it, it uh, for you guys more so than the rest of us because it's literally like an exact thing. I mean, not the suicide right, right. part, but yeah. Um, but um, it, it's something you've been through, and I and I, it's a hard place to go to, of course. But then I think that's the beauty of, of fiction, you know, yeah. like you, like you and you and Stephen King. I, did he lose his mom to cancer? Also, stomach cancer, or is it? I don't know. I'm not. I, I'm not sure what exactly. It, yeah. Either way, it's 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 kind of this thing. Like he's a writer, and he has this experience that happens to be very similar uh, to your guys' experience. And he, and um, I, I think the fact that he can create this tale that can bring you bring you to that like very unsettling place is just like a testament to the power of literature and something that we forget sometimes i, I remember mike was talking about um not not this story but last rung of the ladder being like one of the first stephen king outings that felt like like literature like high yeah. like high art literature and the, and the woman in the room very much feels like that to me and it's it's so he he gets the medical details so right and something that i i don't i've i've not lost a close relative to cancer but um you know i've had i've lost relatives other things and and have a a one right now that's going through some stuff and something that was really uh, both disturbing but also sort of made me feel better in this story is that a lot of these glimmers of hope with the mom like oh she she had this look in her eye or she did this or whatever and it's it's this in, in the in the best world you would think oh cool that means she's getting better that means this and of course, the reality when you have a disease that bad, they're not. It's just like this kind of, you know, slight wishful um, thinking. Almost. Exactly, yeah. It's like this sliver of them breaking through this thing that they're not anymore. And he does such a good job of that. It's so heartbreaking um, to see the narrator dealing with that. And I just love what's that, what's that last line about? Oh, yeah. He 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 helps his mom. He, he he helps, and 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 I ultimately think it's a. I've got um, this here. Yeah, yeah, read, um, yeah, read that. It's, it's after beautiful. he gives her yeah. the pills one by one, and um, so he says. Uh, he starts out of the room and thinks of something else. He goes back to her side, takes a bottle out of the box and rubs it all over his shirt. Then he presses the limp fingertips of her sleeping left hand on the bottle. Then he puts it back and goes out of the room quickly without looking back. He goes home and waits for the phone to ring and wishes he had given her another kiss. While he waits, he watches TV and drinks a lot of water. Just great, Oof. man. And it's yeah. and it's so and it's not like, you know, it's not going over any any sort of wave of tragedy washing over him. It's not even giving him catharsis, really. It's just kind of like this happened, and yeah, hopefully he can get to the point where he he gets over or not gets over it, but um can deal with it. But I love that the ending just in that moment is like, all right, I did this. I'm just 
going to sit here now, you yeah. know, and wait. Yeah, I and you know, it's interesting. This is one of the four stories that was previously unpublished mm-hmm. because, you know, and I think that's sort of the benefit of Night Shift and having a short story collection put out under your own name because, you know, he this isn't the kind of story you can publish in a men's magazine, you know, <laughs> no, between, between, between jerking off. Yeah, yeah, like this yeah. isn't like a cavalier kind of story, you know? So it's like cavalier. This is a graveyard shift. Yeah, <laughs> so it's like it's it's neat that he had and you know, Last Rung of the Ladder was also previously unpublished and I I guess what I, I appreciate about Night Shift is that you know, he was able to also use this book as a means to show the world this different side of his writing. Yeah. I, I I just have a point to this though. My the thing that it does do a disservice to is that there are an expectation that are tied to these stories. Yeah, and yeah. there are certain you want to talk about Chekhov's gun. There is a Chekhov's gun in this in this story, and there's a line that's on page five hundred one of the uh, Anchor Books. <laughs> that's, I'm just always saying that again. Mike is um, a representative of but Anchor there, Books. There, there is yeah. there is a and, and again it it's it's very it's unfortunate that this line's in here because. For me, that I hadn't read this story in a while, like it's it it it, it had been a while. ages since I read it. So like I, I just you know, um, there's a line here that says his mother is paranoid about a great many things lately, and has once told him a man sometimes hides under her bed in the late at night. Like part of it is the combination of drugs they're they're trying on her. Now we know that yeah, that's just the 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 the, the mild delusions that she's having and the mm-hmm. things. But when it's in a book. That's filled with vampires. Oh, that's a good point. Ghosts, yeah. like the, the you know, aliens, Bogeyman. everything. There is an expectation. Bogeyman. Bogeyman. There is there there is an expectation of of where is it going with that, and and I think and I and I think that while it doesn't like when you actually read it, uh, the story separate and removed from Night Shift, it doesn't matter. But in that, it did seem kind of distracting to me. Mm. Like, I, like, I think that's right. I think it comes down to your preconceived notions of, of King, which makes perfect sense at this yeah, point, because he's always yeah. done his horror, but I don't think it's necessary. I, I mean, personally, when I was reading, I wasn't thinking, oh, this is going to be like a, a boogeyman. No, under, I didn't. I don't think he was even deliberate, like, I'm going to put this in here to throw people off. It's the hedge line. Do you, do you think that that, that was what <laughs> he said? Well, that's my wonder, is that, like, why is that? Because the line doesn't really do much well, other than show, to, like... I, just from personal experience, I mean... When the body's going, the what's 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 real and what isn't really starts to amp up in ways that are really uncomfortable. And I think that's what he's just trying to show that she doesn't even really know what's happening anymore either. So yeah, I think I think that's all that was really trying to. Yeah, no, I, I I definitely agree. Yeah. I I just think that when you have it in like surrounded by all these other stories, yeah, it, it does. And it's the last one too. I see, what, I see what you're saying. Like, you, I was like, oh, where is he going to go? After with, you've read this? the Boogeyman and yeah, and, and the like, vampire, yeah, yeah. And, stuff, um, yeah. and yeah, so, yeah, yeah, you know. That line actually really resonated with me, and I think, again, personal experience shaping the way you respond to yeah. literature. Yeah. Um, because, uh, so, it, in my very small family, we have lost a large number of people to terminal illness, mm. mostly cancer, but um, also uh, Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Um, and and one of them was suffering from brain cancer, which has a, like, obviously very different but not dissimilar effect. And there's this thing, the awful things in your life that creep up on you in dark moments that you can't shake. My grandmother, who had Alzheimer's and dementia, um, near the end of her life almost had to have a finger amputated because she took to nervously, uh, when she got scared, geez. rubbing her thumb on her finger. Yeah. Um, to the point when she rubbed it so raw that it became infected. And, and oh, right? God. Um, and I would think about her or about my Aunt Sue or about my grandpa and these moments when they were 
medicated and terrified and the things they, they would be afraid my grandpa would be afraid of my grandmother yeah. my aunt sue would get scared of, of pretty much everything because when you're so ill everything becomes an external threat yeah and i also find this story very moving and i think the fact that the, the, the monster under the bed is just like Mortality is one of the things that makes it so effective. But it's interesting to hear that perspective because, of course, if you if you don't know what's coming and you're reading this collection, it makes sense that you would have a different expectation. The context versus yeah, like I didn't again. I I didn't think that there was ever like, and it was actually going to turn into a monster (laughs) story. I just think that you can convey that idea because, like, I mean, like, because yeah, like my aunt, like she had, she would say that she talked to somebody. That had been dead for thirty years. That you know, for and you know, as a kid, I used to think like, oh my god, like maybe you saw a ghost. My dad would be like, you're an idiot, you know. Um, But like, but I, I just think the the, the image of something under the bed is just so tied to the monsters under the bed. It just, just, I don't know. That was the only, the the only thing. Other than that, I thought this was absolutely moving uh, story, and I, I do think that. I do. While I do wish it was the penultimate instead of the closing, I, I do too. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think that it it, it definitely um, hits at a certain level that's um, very becoming of King at yeah. this what, point in what life. What would you want the closing story to be? Uh, I, I think one for the road. Yeah, doing that bookend thing. Yeah, I think would have been, would have been yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I agree with you. I do. Th- I, I understand where you're coming from because when I read it, I did think you know this is like she's on a lot of medication. This is things that she's seeing and. And it's it's really sad, especially when you when you've experienced uh, something like that with someone uh, that's having those issues. Um, however, to your point, this was a story written for Night Shift, yeah. so I understand where you're coming mm-hmm. from. If this and th- the good thing is is that this comes after stories like The Last Rung on the Ladder, so I was a little I was able to to start viewing stories. Uh, from a different perspective, and maybe maybe this isn't going to be horror. You know what I mean? Yeah. In that mm-hmm. kind of yeah. horror. Oh, totally. So yeah. I was um I was reminded of Farewell to Arms, the Hemingway book, yeah. uh, especially with the title of Woman in the Room, just because you know at the end of uh, spoiler alert for a almost hundred year old book, <laughs> it's like uh, Farewell to Arms. You know, touch like at the end, you know, his wife passes away in childbirth, and he sort of he doesn't put her away, but it's like the the sense of the level of connect like there is a it's not as sentimental you know there is a darkness and there is a sense of numbness that is shown here and just calling it the woman in the room instead of like my mother you know yeah, what I mean yeah. it's like yeah. it's that you know once the body once the soul leaves or whatever it is just a woman in the room and there is something really tragic about that and there's something really sad about that and that's I was very much and you know like those final words of um Farewell to Arms are some of the most devastating that I've ever read, and um, and I feel like King was maybe inspired by that a little bit when he when he finished writing Woman in the Room. So I mean, it goes back to what you were saying, Randall. It's uh, the title, the Woman yeah. in the Room, because it's it's about him trying to detach himself as much as yeah. possible from what he's about to do, as he just treats her as just a a human as opposed to his mother mm-hmm. and what he has to do. And then you look at the format of the story. There are no quotation marks around dialogue at all. Yeah. It's really like McCarthy, Cormac McCarthy-esque in oh, that regard. A, I didn't notice the, that. Um, it's almost like a, a timeless narrative because it'll one sentence will be halfway done and it'll pick up in another scenario. Which it's he very does dreamlike in, um, in a way, too. In that regard. And he ends up doing that in It and a few other books. Yeah, especially too, the conclusion like, of yeah. It. Yeah. It's, it. It is weird that it's not in the first person. 
Yeah, know, it's what it's, it's very, I think very it's, detached. There, yeah. as much as I love the whole collection here, there are a few stories that I think really do show just a leap forward for King. Like you guys said, because yeah. this was written for. I mean, it was more of the more recent stories here, but yeah, this is an instance that I think like predicts both content-wise some of the uh, non-supernatural things King would be interested in, but also like some of those ex- those structure flourishes and what, and that he would be would like what different seasons that he's well I was thinking the body would yeah. be that and then even further along in the supernatural story I, the relationship between him and his mother is very similar to uh, Lysie and her husband and Lysie's yeah. story in terms of how no, it is, in terms yeah. of dealing with somebody that you love it's a different type of love obviously but it's who's dying yeah. and I think that he, he captures it very well here and it's, it's a precursor to yeah. what was to come hello Bill Band here from the all 80s movies podcast to tell you about Factor Meals Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80s movies 50 to get your 50% off today. Yeah, um that's a it's a good story. It's oh a my God. No, I'm serious. Yeah, like, work, work your yeah. pun out of this one, oh Randall. Just that, I know, I was sitting there like, where am I gonna go? And I'm just like, I'm just gonna say this. Yeah. There's the woman in the room, and then there's the window, and we climb out the window <laughs> and we find ourselves <laughs> On the ledge. Oh, man. Um, and so uh, now that leads us to our number six story. Uh, it's a little story called The Ledge. I want to talk about some Pulp Fiction here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love got, it. I love this it. Is, this is, it doesn't get tighter. It's a tighter story of telling than this. Mm-hmm. I, you know, this was published uh, in 1976 in mm-hmm. Penthouse Magazine. And Ooh, this yeah. is a Penthouse story. <laughs> I mean, this, this, this is a story about masculinity cuckolding forbidden <laughs> love emasculation Rich one assholes. of my favorite fetishes findom um, no it, which is financial uh, oh financial domination um, this is this has got it all we got we got a tennis hunk who, tennis falls, hunk. who falls in love with a mobster's wife and is blackmailed into walking around a skyscraper yeah. um, which is it's so it's that's, it's that's it that's it, that's, it, it, that's the story. It's I mean, funny that you mentioned Pulp Fiction. I mean, this is totally exactly like a vignette you would see in Pulp Fiction, which absolutely. isn't something that came to me. But like the the tone, I mean, there's some grisly things that happen, obviously, with the, the wife getting killed and everything like that. But I mean, it is it is a pretty fun story. No, yeah. you know but, what Tarantino it would be in? It would be in Four Rooms. Yes. Oh yes, that's yes. right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would watch yeah. the shit out of that. Yeah, yeah. Only it would be Tim Roth. Oh yeah, going yeah. up. Yes. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fun. I this love it. Is, this is going down. So of its era. Yeah, the muscular storytelling. I mean, there's so little fat. It gets to the point. It it executes without even like thinking of how ludicrous mm-hmm. any yeah. of this is. And 
You got Stan Norris, who is a James Conn. Like, he's a champ. He's a total. He, he, I, I just see 70, 73 era James Conn in this role. I don't see the guy from Airplane that they got in the. Wait, yeah. did we explain like, what exactly happens here? Okay, so in the story. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you well, wait, given yeah. the circumstances. So Stan, of Norris, the deal, Stan Norris is, you know, is the, the tennis pro um, that works at the country club, falls in love with this woman um, who happens to be married to a gangster. To a, gra- a gangster, yeah, a guy named Kressner. Um, and it, it the the story opens right up with them, you know, uh, talking about oh the yeah, deal. and Kressner, so he's they make him so smart. He's such a smart. I hate him. I love so it, man. Smarmy. I love it. Picture I, picture like '90s era Trump, and then yeah. they'll have a really oh, good time. Absolutely, with this story. yeah. yeah. You know, and, and so <laughs> that's all I got. <laughs> basically, Kressner blackmails this guy, saying like, "Look, I got you know, I know that you're a, you, I got twenty thousand uh, dollars that you know." Uh, you know, we'll give to you, but you got this heroin, you got like $20,000 of heroin that's in the car that's that he's parked downstairs and he's going to call the cops and report them and he's going to get like 20-something years or 40-something yeah. years in jail and basically he keeps threatening him saying like, you're not going to get my wife because she'll be an old woman by the time you get out and it's just like that, that yeah. sort of like, it, it's it's so emasculating in the mm-hmm. sense that just like, like oh, I'm not going to be with this woman I love and, and all this other stuff, this guy's holding it all above me and so he basically forces this guy saying, like, you know, it's not a bet. It's, uh, it's a wager. wager. If he walks around the ledge, if he can make it around the ledge successfully, they'll move the, remove the heroin from the car. They'll let him, they, they use the language, I'll let you be with my wife, yeah. which comes into which play coming, later. Yeah. How, and how go tall away is with the, the building? It's a ledge of a building. That oh, it's, oh, it's, it's tall. A it's a high height. It's yeah. like 60 stories, he, maybe a lot. Yeah. But it's also, he also offers him, like, 20 grand just to leave entirely, right? No, I think no, he, he makes him. I think it's like if you either, you either do this this uh, walk around the oh, ledge, okay. you get to yeah. go away with my wife, and, or well, you. And here's like, oops. Oops. here's a yeah. great here's a great description of this Krasner guy. He was wearing a silk dressing gown on which a dragon was embroidered. <laughs> his eyes were calm and intelligent behind his glasses. He looked just like what he was an A number one five hundred carat. Dive in the wool, son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I loved his wife, and she loved me. I had expected him to make trouble, and I knew this was it. But I just wasn't sure what brand it was. I mean, that, that's a synopsis. That's great, and, and that's, that's such synopsis. that's such a king like insult thing. Like, oh, you a grade son of a bitch. Oh, you son and of a bitch. I, I do like too how they treat Norris. <laughs> like they don't make Norris this perfect. Like he's kind of a he's no, he's like he's he's very similar to Bruce Willis in, in Pulp Fiction. He's this washed up kind of tennis pro, yeah. and he ha- he actually has a history of breaking and entering. Like he's not a great guy. Yeah, I like either, I, I like when it. he yeah. talks about how he's like you know he's like I'm sort of at the end of my career as a tennis pro. What have I got? Lose, what, yeah. what else am I going to do with my life? Yeah. So he basically has to walk the ledge around this building, and they're very high up in the air. It's five inches, the ledge? Oh, yeah, it's, it's only so five inches. It's, it's, yeah, it's five inches. Long. His heel always is hanging off over the edge of it, which is so scary to me. And also just, and I love the idea that, like, the fact that he's a tennis pro works into it because he's got, like, really strong legs. He's yeah. got good ankles. Though. Yeah, he's got good ankles, yeah. Yeah, I don't have a fear of heights, but I do have a fear of stepping outside with only, you know, five inches to stand on. Yeah. So yeah. I feel like even if you're not, I mean, anybody reads this yeah. is going to be I have a fear on of the height. edge also, of the ledge. Oh, well, and there's also the idea that it's freezing outside. Pigeons? They, they stress out that they're pigeons. They, I mean, it, it is like an old NES game that he just keeps on... <laughs> Raising the difficulty on everything, and he paints this like portrait 
of or just paints the whole setting so well because there's like one side that's going to have more wind there's one side that has the pigeons there's one side where he's actually able to keep teasing him and like you know yeah. goading him with like like psychological warfare and and he's able to um you know i think at one point he has like a new year's popper thing that he that he yeah it's a like cranker like a new year's cranker. that scared the hell out of me that moment yeah. like when he popped out of the window because oh. i'm just like how is he hanging on? Yeah, and like it's, yeah, it's absolutely terrifying. I I don't think I could have made it. No. Yeah, I, mean, I, <laughs> I wouldn't have made I it. Personally, like I don't think I could have done it. Um, but the thing that's most terrifying in this story to me is the passage of time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. You don't really realize just how long he's out there, and then all of a sudden, like they'll just drop a little line in there. And he sees the like, bank oh clock. Right? Yeah. 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 Half an hour. Looming bank clock, and it starts when he's like in, in like eight o'clock, like late, like late, like close to yeah. nine. And he doesn't finish until like almost like eleven thirty or something. Yeah, and there's a, and and, and the, probably the most horrifying part is where he gets to take a little break. Yeah, there's a little indentation somewhere where he can like kind of. Well, rest he goes for to the, the there's a balcony on the other opposite yeah. end, and he like climbs up and lays down, but he can't stay there too long because his muscles will start to like yeah. seize up. And like, yeah. how do you get back out on that ledge after getting mm-hmm. down yeah. onto that other balcony? So it's like even more. It's like, God, I wish that wasn't even there for him. I wish he just kept pushing on. It's such an anxious story. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, it's... And, like, the horror is so organic, like, just to the situation. And, I mean, I think for anyone who's afraid of heights, and even if you're not, but it's like, for me, I'm afraid of heights. So just the idea of, like, the dizziness that would accompany looking down when you're that mm. high, that's well, so scary And they me. set up the stakes as it goes. Yeah. Like, you know, the, you already know that this is a bad, bad situation. Yeah, it's all building. But the stakes even get higher. Like, he goes... Uh, on page 293 of the uh, Anchor Books edition. Uh, <laughs> if I lost this match, I wouldn't have to buy the beers and take the ribbing. I'd be so much scarlet sludge splattered for a block of Deakman Street in both directions. When I thought I had it, I looked down. The building sloped away like a smooth chalk cliff to the street far, street far below. The cars parked there looked like those matchbo- matchbox models you can buy in the five and dime. The ones driving by the building were just tiny pinpoints of light. If you fell that far... You would have plenty of time to realize just what was happening, to see the wind blowing your clothes as the earth pulled you back faster and faster. You'd have time to scream a long, long scream, and the sound you made when you hit the pavement would be like the sound of an overripe watermelon. Last uh, night when I, or two nights ago, I was walking home, and this is one of the final stories I read, and um, the apartment building right near where I live it's not even that tall, you know, it's like four stories or something like that. But I looked up at the ledge and they have like a tiny lip that goes around yeah. and it's about five inches. And even that, I was like, ooh, that would be horrifying. Even though it's not that high yeah. up, but that, it's still, once you go past two stories, I mean, it's enough to kill you. you know? Well, there's, yeah. there's also like some other things that like, I mean, the, the pigeons, for example, like if we're going to talk about like cemetery stuff, I mean, the gore with the pigeons is mm. really gross. Again, hypoch- hypochondriac, like in the way he describes it's is disgusting. Kresner couldn't have conceived of worse torture if he had planned it for ten years. One peck was not a bad, was not so bad. Two or three were a little more. But that damn bird must have pecked me sixty times before I reached the wrought iron railing of the penthouse opposite Cressner's. Uh, and before that, he goes, and the pain was getting more intense. Now the bird was pecking at raw flesh and eating it for all I know. Yeah. And like, I mean, and he acknowledges that he's like, I'm gonna have to get taken care of. He's good. God knows what germs these pigeons have. So it's just like, and that's like. <laughs> already like I think 70% into the you know and he describes this great thing about how like he doesn't belong there and like you know it's like a it's a very you know the pigeons like this is the pigeons territory so it's this whole like stat like status thing also that's going on here it's like this guy is just out of his fucking element and like you know he has to survive it um and I just love I mean the 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 ending's great um I love the ending it's it's so satisfying it's like one of the few like 
satisfying. It's also sad though. It's like I'm. I'm sad that Cressner kills kills her. You know. You know, yeah, it is. Kind of, yeah, I also say it's it's probably it's one of the only stories where like the bad guy gets it right. Yeah, like, I mean, well, I guess you could say the the, well, the hotel. But if he doesn't make it, he dies, and if he does, he's gonna shoot. He's him gonna anyway. get him. What, anyway. What's that line? So, he's like, I he's mean, like, Cressner never welched on a bet. I, however, have been known yeah, to. Yeah, or yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, and like, I, I mean, it. it is great though. Like, I the thing is though, he uh, King depicts the journey and the and sort of the you know, how much it destroys him to walk that ledge, and it's such, like, an intense journey that when he makes it, you're, like, so excited, you're so happy, it's, like, such an achievement, so then to go in and immediately be like, oh, well, we killed her anyways, so no. it's just, like, I remember, but that's good, like, it's good storytelling, but it just, like, it deflated me so much that, you know, and then it makes sort of him killing Cressner in the end, or, like, you know, getting his revenge almost kind of empty in a lot of ways. Yeah, you know? totally, yeah. I mean, I, I, I just think this is tight as hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think I had so much fun reading this. Yeah. And it's fantastic. So as we stand out on the ledge, we look out over the city and we see a building with a sign. The sign says Quitters Inc. <laughs> Our number five story in the Night Shift short story collection. Um, I actually think Quitters Inc. is really fascinating. It's this—it's a story of uh, a guy who wants to quit smoking and he gets directed by an old friend to um, an organization, Quitter... Is it called Quitters Inc.? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's called Quitters Inc. Yeah. Quitters Inc. that uh, basically helps you uh, quit smoking and they they're like we 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 won't charge you until you actually do quit and so wow this is too good to be true but then it turns out that their way of doing it is actually uh, quite violent and terrifying and um, actually some people have compared Quitters Inc to a Richard Bachman story um, and I actually think that that is a pretty smart comparison. Um, yeah, it you know, feels like it, yeah. it's not overtly horror. It kind of exists in a world that's like one step to the left of our own, which I think you can say about you know a lot of um, a lot of uh, uh, Richard Bachman properties. And it also kind of concerns like the suburban world. Like, mm-hmm. and I think that that's something that's more. Um, that's more Bachman than King. He, Bachman deals with like businessmen. A lot. Yeah, he, like, like you know, I, King doesn't. I thought yeah. about thinner a lot on this, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. in a lot of ways. And um, and you know, I we kind of talked about with Gray Matter too the idea of addiction. Uh, there it was alcoholism, and here it's smoking. And I think, um, and I guess what I really like about uh, Quitters Inc. is that it almost seems to support the idea that <laughs> yeah. you know sometimes the only way to quit an addiction is to make the stakes so insanely high. Well, well, that's what's weird about the book is that Quitters, Inc. does, for all intents and purposes, work. Like, it ends up working. And now, like, you know, especially with that last moment where you see the woman's finger missing, of course, these are nefarious methods. But so, yeah, in the story, it's essentially they surveil you. And if you have so many, if you smoke so many cigarettes or have so many setbacks the torture gets progressively worse. So, like, yeah. at first it has this electroshock floor that he, they put his wife on, and then... Yeah, and that's the thing, is they, they hurt your yeah, family. They, they don't hurt you. They threaten to beat his son and all that. Um, but and I love, the sick little joke of the story is that, A, Quitters Inc. does help this guy quit smoking, but it even helps him... He has a, a special needs kid. Yeah. It even helps him love that yeah. kid more. And that's, like... He becomes closer to both his kid and his wife. And he gets and in better shape. So he gets I, in I better know. shape. I kind of like, wish that I was uh, enrolled with... But seriously, like, honestly, honestly, I think that, I think that anybody, like, I've talked to people who have had 
addictions before who yeah. who love this story because there's like like I had a friend who you know was addicted to um, um, heroin for a while and he like he loved Stephen King and he joked to me he's kind of like man I would have got off heroin a lot quicker if Quitters Inc was a real thing yeah he's like if they were actually threatening my family and stuff then I would have got off this shit a lot quicker because you sometimes you need the stakes to be that high yeah. and that to me is absolutely fascinating and what I and another thing that I think establishes this is sort of a Richard Bachman story you know if there's one thing that you can say about King's works it's that. They're complex storytelling-wise and character-wise, but they're not often morally complex, you know? No. It's usually pretty clear who the good guys and bad guys are in King. No. And um, whereas that's not the case with Richard no. Bachman. I think he actually, even though I, I, I like most Bachman books considerably less than I do King, at the same time, I will say that, uh, except for The Running Man, um, that the, the 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 lines are a lot blurrier. Yeah, oh, you know? road work especially thinner. Definitely. Road work especially yeah. thinner, especially and, from um, Charlie from Rage. Even Rage, oh, like yeah. I think Rage is like that too. I mean, that's what he's trying to do. Yeah. but it's like I think Shut that that's it. interesting, and so I think that you know there's sort of a morally complex thing here where. You know, one of the things I love about Quitters Inc. is that there isn't sort of this, like, like you would expect, like, an uprising. Like, hey, let's overthrow Quitters Inc. because it's yeah, bad, yeah. you know? They love Quitters I, Inc. I know. I love that it's, like, in the end, even though it's nefarious, like, it makes people's lives better. Yeah. And I think that's complicated. And and it also, I'm I'm not a smoker, but I have heard that, like, I remember in Bob Mould's uh, autobiography, he talks about how quitting smoking was, like, harder than getting off hard drugs for mm-hmm. him. Like, smoking was just such a hard thing to quit. And so that I, 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 not being an addict myself, I imagine that this book captures that addict's plight so much. And the thing we forget too is that the main character. I mean, he he really only has the one misstep, and then seeing his seeing his wife on that electric shock floor, that's enough for him to quit cold yeah. turkey. And I would suspect that's like probably the would be the case for a lot of people trying to quit smoking. Now, now will they ever? do it through those methods of course not I don't think that would ever be yeah, legal yeah. but like you do wonder about the effectiveness of it I, I love that it makes us ask those questions all while being kind of a fun mm-hmm. little genre story see I don't know because for me personally like I was um, really into Mountain Dew and Munchkins <laughs> oh this is um, true every morning at work. wait what are Munchkins every morning every morning at work from Monday through Friday you know, I get in the office around 8 o'clock I <laughs> okay. sit down with my with my Mountain Dew and my oh, ten um, munchkins yeah. from Dunkin' Donuts. Ten munchkins. <laughs> and um, I just sit there and eat them every morning. And it's been on for about a year or two. So to go back to you, I think if you threaten, for instance, my brother Mac, I think I still <laughs> I think I still would have continued to eat those munchkins in Mountain Dew. I think Horrible. It, it takes a certain human being to be able to stop. Yeah, I don't think can... Donati or, or Quitters Inc. would have, would have really convinced <laughs> yeah. me to do that. And let me just say. Max, okay? Max let me just say, the electric floor. Chocolate, please. Let me just say, if I'm dancing on this electric floor <laughs> yeah. and I come out, I'm not going to be like Richard Morrison's wife where when you tell me what's going on and why it's happening, mm. that I'm going to be like, oh, it's okay, it's that okay. Was like, a that little was weird. the one yeah. thing that didn't sit well with me was that yeah. she's like, she's actually like really like happy about the situation because she knows like he's really trying to stop smoking. I would have been like, fuck you, man. Like, well, how, how can you like, say that kidding this? me? Yeah. First of all, I wouldn't have shown up. I would have been too busy back at home eating my munchkins and Mountain Dew. <laughs> well, you know, well, that's on you because the second, the second, so the first one is the electric shock of the wife. The second would be to shock you. So that's on, that's, you know, have fun. No, uh, uh, the third child. is uh, they would shock both of you. The fourth was to beat the sun. Yeah. So I got news for you. 
we don't have kids. So exactly. that works out. <laughs> did, did, did anybody uh, else kind of hope that it got to the, the beating the son? No. No, no, no absolutely not. Five was more painful beatings of son and wife and so on. I think they maybe even Wait, when did the to finger like cut off rape and stuff. No, so the finger cut off is so with, with the weight. his friend Jimmy McCann who Oh, who I know, was, but when was that in the process? That was all for the weight. So cuz yeah. cuz a lot of oh, people Oh, the weight. That right, was the right. Weight. Which yeah. is funny cuz when he first sees Jimmy McCann in the beginning, he says he says, "Oh, you look a little heavier." And that's when Jimmy McCann gets like grim looking cuz I think his wife finger just probably mm, got yeah. cut off. Oh, that's yeah. I, I yeah. do... Oh, sorry, go so, ahead. No, I was just going to say, um, it goes from that to breaking of limbs and then the 10th infraction. You're shot to death, so yeah. you're going to probably, <laughs> if you get to the 9th, you're probably going to stop yeah. knowing the next one's death. And that's only happened to like 2% of them. Something I wondered about, though, is... I, I know we're, ta- we're saving adaptations for later. Um, in Cat's Eye, where they have the, the adaptation of Quitter's Inc., I think it's more effective the way Cat's Eye does it when he asks about the weight in the end. Donati jokes with him like, yeah. oh, if you don't lose it, we'll cut off your wife's finger. And it's played like a joke. And so then the ending in Cat's Eye is more effective when he does see the the woman's finger. And it's like, ooh. And this, though, I didn't get the sense that he was joking. I, I got the idea that, like, Oh, Donati was being yeah, serious. So 100% and then he sees serious. It. So yeah. the, the little twist wasn't yeah. didn't quite land. Well, that's the whole Hollywood magic for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, you <laughs> know what? Sometimes big Hollywood knows how to tell a big yeah. story. Big Hollywood. But it's great. I mean, it's, look, this, this, it's another one. Is it's like slight. It's like the legend that's slightly heightened. It's slightly pulpy. I, yeah. I think it's just fun. It's a fucking. Fun I think story. it kind of. I think it's the kind of story where, like, the way it's written, um, you know. Those the the questions of practicality, like wouldn't the wife go to the police or something? <laughs> yeah, those are things that I you think have to. You just gotta let it go. Yeah, yeah. No, I, mean, what, like, what they, I get it though, but no, it's, yeah. yeah. And I do I do like that the, it's it's slightly cartoonish. Like one of my favorite moments in it. It's so silly is that he gets the bill at the end. Yeah, and he's like. And they charge him 50 cents for the electricity on the floor. And he's like, they're charging for the electricity. It's yeah, like, I love like a, that. It's like a honeymooner thing. She's like, just pay it. Like, I, I love that, though. It, yeah. it reminded me of that. Um, what's that story in Full Dark, Full Dark and No Stars where the guy's luck starts going great and, like, the bad I mean, stuff starts happening? It's the shorter the of the, of the It's, it's that kind of tone, yeah. like, this really dark thing. And they're like, oh, honey. And, yeah, I, that, I don't know. That was, that was, like, a really nice case. Yeah. So, so this one was actually written specifically for Night Shift. It was. It was, yeah, this it was never. It was form. previously unpublished, so yeah. yeah. In this, because yeah. this is another one I could see easily in like a in like a penthouse. Yeah, like, yeah but at the same time, though, like I feel like it wasn't king enough. Like yeah. he might have sent this to a, a thing, and they would have been like, "Yeah, we want something more king." Come on, like, and then he just sends it again. And it says Richard Bachman. <laughs> 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 like seriously though. Yeah. But um, any I, other any other thoughts on? We, it, yeah, I, I, I guess I, we kind of touched upon that last sentence. Is so good. again another great ending to another great yeah, short yeah. story. Yeah, I mean it's 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 it's. It's very cinematic. Yeah. Because it's so visual and you just like hear like a piano like do And for proof it translates perfectly to the adaptation that is in Cat's Eyes. Good old Woods. Vampires uh, hunk James Woods. It's James Woods. I thought it was Jimmy Kahn. James James Woods. James Kahn. Jimmy Kahn is who I pictured in The Ledge when I was reading it. Who's that? Robert Hayes. Yeah, from Airplane. Jimmy Kahn. Anyways, final thoughts? Quitter's Inc. Love it. Uh, I can't quit the story if I'm being honest. <laughs> I can't um, quit those munchkins of Mountain Dew. I know. And if there's anything oh, I can't, I, I can't quit. It's uh, laying on the beach at night, watching the <laughs> night surf come in. And that's that's our number four uh, best story in Night Shift is Night Surf, which um, you may know as a prequel of sorts to The Stand. Yeah, you know it's funny. I, I was very quiet in the last one because I was sitting there for five minutes wondering how you're going to connect <laughs> Quitter's Inc. to Night Surf. 
Bravo. <laughs> Did a very good job. I, I, I you know, uh, like Randall said, yeah, this was published in 1974 in uh, Cavalier. Uh, it, this is a very strange story to yeah. have um, ahead of the stand. You know, right now we read it and it and it works because we understand. I mean, I think it works either way, but right now it means a lot more mm-hmm. when we know what everything's going down in the stand. But could you imagine, like, I'm tr- I, I kept, when I was reading this, because I really love this, it reminds me of uh, Hemingway's stories, Hills Like White Elephants, yeah. where there's a lot in the details and so much less in, like, the dialogue. And it's not else. very plot heavy or No, it's like not. That. It's just yeah. there, and you have to kind of discern a lot of things. But could you, I mean, it's, it's just very odd to, like, have this, like, you know, you're reading the story about some random flu. This, there's a lot of, like, mythology in here. About yeah. the Asian flu. It's very lived in. Yeah. It's a very lived in world. Um, but anyway, it's about a bunch of rebellious teens, and they're roaming around a post-apocalyptic New England, and there's a super flu, and um, they're kind of, uh, you know, dejected, apathetic. Uh, nihilistic, apathetic mm. teens that are um, kind of just living life as much as they can because they kind of know already that the world's crumbled around them, and they're just waiting for their own demise, in a sense. Like, yeah. I, you know, it kind of reminds me of the 1979 video by Smashing Pumpkins. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, and it, there's a little bit of Lord of the Flies-ish to this. Well, they, end up killing, they end up killing a, uh, a, a businessman they find who has Captain Trips, the flu. Which um, has some the, of the yeah. most haunting images in and this. The, yeah, and, there, and something that came to mind, well, a couple things came to mind. A... Is this like in the exact world of the stand, or is it, it kind well, of like the Dark Tower? It actually, I'm looking, version. I think it was actually. Well, it says here is actually published in 1969. Really? Uh, okay. yeah, it was 1969 yeah. in Uber's Magazine, which I which is a uh, hmm. a literary journal from the University of Maine. Yeah, I feel so, I feel like I knew crazy. that this was really early. Yeah, like and that this was a story that I feel like he was turning around in his mind a lot. Like, the, well, war- just to think about the fact that Captain Trips was when his, was was in his head for almost a decade yeah. Yeah. Well, before the, he did the stand the world in it is not exactly like the stand because in this one they've they've survived like two other flus and then this one comes along and kills them whereas in the stand it's like this outbreak that happens yeah. from this from this military testing facility and that and it just wipes out everyone so I, like I don't know is it in the world of the stand exactly or is it more like that parallel universe kind of well do they I'm sorry I, I can't remember do they know exactly what the cause of the flu was no, no they it, don't mention very well, it they, they it just think it's the, the flu well, there's the, a line in here yeah. that, here let me uh, but I guess the Asian thing is what's interesting to me because they all they all say oh we all survived like the A5 flu and the A6 flu but this one is different so like I get the oh, idea it's it been war they yes. call it Captain Trips though right? yeah they yeah. do they do. They call it a bunch of because it's there's it's a whole there's actually almost like more um uh, mythology about the flu in this than there is in like the actual stand. Yeah. Some sort well, the stand's pretty basic. It's just that it's, this it's the flu exactly. got out. I guess it yeah. could but come like, in waves. But here know. they yes. like because they, they, they call it A two is one thing. And That's it's right. A six, which was another form. But they, I mean, he basically says it here. He goes, um, so here we were with the whole human race wiped out, not by atomic weapons or bio warfare or pollution or anything grand like that. Just the flu. Little did they know it actually it was, was a biological yeah. weapon. I. I like to imagine that this was that this isn't the, the same, same world. Place, and that yeah. what's actually more frightening to me is knowing that um, is that somewhere else out there there's a really we- like like philosophical battle between good and evil that's yeah. a- that's actually happening between Flag and Abigail um, Abigail's people. And like, and they're for, just the lost and they're ones. Just there yeah. the because because not like ever. I always that's something that always bugged me a little bit about they're the stand. I'm like, because and the stand happened in because in the stand, in the book they purposely release it to the rest of the world so the U.S. doesn't get blamed for it. 
So that means the entire globe is affected by this. Because yeah. they mentioned L- London. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's funny in the stand because you had these two camps in, in Boulder and then in Las Vegas. But I always do wonder. I'm like, there's no way every single survivor went to one of them. And I, I do like to think that there are still these pockets of people either just, like I said, being total nihilists. Because Flags people aren't nihilists. They're not good people, but they're not like, like they believe in something. What's know? even crazier is that is apparently only white people survive too in the stand, except for Mother <laughs> Abigail and maybe the rat man too. So and the judge. That way too. Oh, and the, no, the judge is white in the book. I'm pretty sure. Oh, he is. No, in the book he is. Yeah, yeah that is kind of weird, huh? But we'll yeah. talk about that uh, in our stand. Yeah, <laughs> no, and, and uh, no, yeah, I just, I just thought this was really creepy. And, and, and like you said, when they, when they burn the, the business. Oh book, yeah. Um, yeah. They kind of say it's like it's almost like a dark joke, and they say it's like uh, they they, they kind of talk about like offering it to the dark gods, so, so they that, can live. So, so maybe like this will like help them live longer, even though they say winter's coming around the corner and they're probably all going to be dead by Christmas. So they all know this is coming. And the thing that I thought was really interesting is that these kids are still awful. Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. Like even yeah. though they know Especially deaths around, deaths knocking oh. on their door, they they they're like just like shitty kids, yeah. like all the way. To like the, the main end. guy, Bernie, look, he's such an asshole. And he reminds me of you. You think that this Decker. would like yeah. humble you or put you in some kind of state? And so I thought to have to be well, in that weird mindset too is kind of. Do cool. you guys think they were like that though before the the plague? That's something I, I was. I, I get the sense that like everyone, all, like his the way he paints kids is that they're all just kind of like going reverting to their sort of like inner animalistic instincts like look how he describes what's going on with the radio station you know yeah. there's like two kids that took over and he's like and one of the um this is the radio host uh angie by the rolling stones uh the cracked voice on Corey's radio said i'm sure you dug that one a blast from the past that's a golden gas straight from the groove yard a plata that matters i'm bobby this was supposed to be fred's night but fred got the flu he's all swelled up like yeah, that's it's like, yeah, it's super it's absolutely kind of like, removed from reality. It feels like, like a stunted adolescence. You know, I feel like yeah. these are the way they are. It's how they're always. So, going do we to be. think any of the people in this group are immune? Do you think there are people that are immune no, I within think this world? Somebody starts to get sick in it. Am I? I know well, that's the, the thing. Needles get sick. Yeah, well, he said that he had the, the Hong because they talk about the Hong Kong flu. Yeah, that was uh, that was something different. And he like how they how people would get that and they they'd be fine. And that's what and that's what is different than in the from the stand well, to what me. We know of the stand. But that's like you said because it, it could just all be part of the same thing, and it, yeah. it gets wiped. People get wiped out in waves. Um, I think. I mean, the story to me is very cold and fatalistic, and yeah. so I got I got the idea that they were they're all going to get, get eventually. eventually. Yeah. Needle Needle's got it. Um, and Bernie, and the in a weird way, that's the one thing that keeps Bernie kind of human is that he actually does worry about that. Like, so he's not completely severed from who he once was even though he's a very awful person like yeah. it, it it's like sort of human to see him worry a little bit i guess well yeah i mean, I mean cuz there's this really awful nightmare that he has on the oh, passage yeah. too he goes um God. he's talking about the man that they they burned yeah right? cuz i had sweaty ugly dreams about alvin sakon he was propped behind the wheel of his shiny yellow lincoln talking about his grandmother he was nothing but a bloated blackened head and a charred skeleton he smelled burnt he talked on and on, and after a while, I couldn't make out a single word. I woke up breathing hard. But then he says, to make make sure we know he's an asshole, Susie was sprawled across my thighs, <laughs> pale and bloated. Yeah. Oh, he's awful <laughs> like he's not, just, Don't forget. I have a no, list of everything. He's a nothing but a bloated, blackened head, and he wakes up with, and he describes Susie as being bloated as well. He's just like this weird And that, that is guy. just one of many adjectives. I oh, listed out all of them. Oh, God. Flabby, mouthy, oh. little bitch Susie with her fat ass, Panning like a horse, Jeez. greasy plate, a big clown face, which he kind of related to her to looking like one of those like Goosebumps uh, amusement park uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, bloated, and then pig. 
Good Sounds like Donald Trump. I know. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Uh, now, now, I haven't got, gotten to this part in the stand yet, but there's a scene in the miniseries where Harold talks to a guy in a car who's a skeleton. Yeah. He's kind of like a, a like burnt like corpse. Is that in the book? And is that are they trying huh. to like connect in that a mini? To, that's in the miniseries. Well, that's yeah. in a dream that it's Harold a dream has, that he has. But yeah. I don't think that's in it. But there is a bit where I feel like the bit where Larry's in the tunnel. And the, he sees, and the things in the corpse for a second, and like, the yeah, corpse like says hi, Larry, or something yeah. like that's in the book. Yeah. Who, your like. favorite character? I fucking hate. No, I, I love, love Larry Underwood. I hate Adam. We're Stork. gonna hold the Adam Stork <laughs> dialogue <laughs> for another Come month. Come on, I love Adam Stork. Love Adam Stork. We're, we're gonna have words over Adam. Stork. All right, final thoughts on Night Surf. I this is uh this is ranked really high for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's another unsettling one. It, it's really it's hard and depressing to get through, but I loved it. It's, it's a great yeah. story. I'm always interested in disenchanted youth, even if it's forced because of a uh, you know deadly virus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I I think this is. I mean, I just think it really captures that that malaise of the apocalypse really well. Like where you just feel like nothing else matters, you know? Yeah. Um, and I I I think it's just effective uh, storytelling in the sense of just describing the world I mean like I, I you know there's it's not very long it's very short in fact I think I read it on the like my like train ride home it's like a 10 minute read yeah. 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 but you get so much more out of this than a lot of the longer ones I mean you get a lot a lot more out of this than you do in say um uh, like you know, what is it? Something's got to give, or no? Uh, sometimes <laughs> sometimes, sometimes they come oh back. God. I'm just joking. That was well, he, a, that he, was an inf- he it's <laughs> another joke. it's another story like Children of the Corn, where he reveals the information. I think very astutely, and yeah. it's um, you don't get these big monologues like, yeah, this happened, then this happened. I, yeah. I love the way he kind of feeds us information. We still don't know a ton about the world by the end, which I think is okay. We know enough. Yeah. Well, we're gonna know a lot more about that world in a couple weeks when we uh, dive into the stand. Yeah. yeah. So. But, you know, if there's one thing that's scarier than Captain Trips, well, that would be the Boogeyman. <laughs> so the Boogeyman, which, um, which, was, which is my personal number one, by the way. Uh, this is a simple story about a Boogeyman in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> Boogeyman, right? <laughs> okay, we can move on to the next one. Boogeyman! No, um, long story short, it's about, it's about this man named Billings, who has an appointment with a psychologist named Dr. Harper. Uh, Billings is a very unstable man who's convinced that it's because of him that three children, his three children, were killed by a boogeyman. Uh, the guy's a real jerk. Racist. <laughs> he's racist. He's resentful that he had to drop out of school because his wife got pregnant. He shakes at the thought of his kid being a quote-unquote sissy. Throws around the N-word like nobody's oh, business. Yeah. So he's, you know, he's awful. But we kind of sympathize with, with Dr. Harper as we go along. Um, <laughs> but long story short, he, one by one, he describes... His children's deaths and how they were ruled as you know crib death, um, a brain convulsion, falling out of the crib. That's what the medical profession Swallowing says. Tongue. Swallowing your tongue. But we learn as he goes along that he's convinced that this boogeyman has been haunting his children and and maybe haunting him still. Now, who here growing up was never afraid of a potential boogeyman or monster in their closet. Uh, me, though. Thank you very much. I mean, I was afraid of Michael Myers, who is my... Well, who is the boogeyman? He, he is the boogeyman. Yeah. The shape. I was very so, afraid of the dark. What, what I'm saying is, right off the bat, whatever the boogeyman is to you, mm-hmm. that alone can disturb you. And so that's from that starting point, you know, we're off to the races. And the story is just disturbing throughout, not only because we're talking about the death of children, 
in in such a vicious way as gets described in the in the in the book. Their faces turning black. Their, their faces yeah. turning black. I've, oh, but um, but yeah, Dan, you want to echo one? Well, yeah, th- I, I was gonna ask a couple of things because I yeah, this this was my number one until rereading that shift, and I, I would you know probably put a couple others before that, but that doesn't matter. I think the reason it was my number one was because of what you said. I mean, the, the, he leaves the boogeyman so obtuse and vague in it. I mean, you get some details that there's like a slithering noise and, yeah. the, and at the end when it's revealed, of course, that Dr. Harper is the boogeyman, you see this claw. Um, the, the thing that really stuck with me was being able to place your own projection onto the boogeyman um, and, of course, the kid's death. The thing that struck me, though, rereading it, it and it, it's a hard thing to get through because, like you said, Lester Billings is horrible. He's like mm-hmm. a horrible guy but the thing that was so rattling to me in a good way was that he's this horrible guy and he goes back and forth between being like misogynistic and racist and all this stuff and even saying kind of terrible shit about his kids. But then you do get the idea that he loves them and, and has he been driven crazy by this? And then at a certain point I was like, well, maybe he's the one who killed his kids. But then mm-hmm. you see, of course, that the doctor is the boogeyman. So I think it just plays with your expectations so much. Yeah, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I had a similar experience rereading it where, um, and in listening to this, you will have already heard about Strawberry Spring and The Man Who Loved Flowers, where it's reasonable to expect that this horrible person is actually the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. And honestly, for these children, he may also have sort of been the boogeyman, yeah, right? Yeah. Like he's physically, verbally abusive. He's misogynistic, resentful, like a a terrible, terrible person and a terrible parent. But, and this is going to be the third time that we've referenced 10 Cloverfield Lane, but like in 10 Cloverfield Lane, it is possible for the this guy to be terrible and awful and a horrendous parent and for there to also be a boogeyman. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, it's totally. Both of those horrors can coexist. So the most horrifying moment in, in it to me is actually when he describes choosing to put his third kid back in the bedroom because he knew the boogeyman was coming. So he essentially sacrificed his child. And that is every bit as scary as realizing that the boogeyman has this Dr. Harper yeah. And that, totally. that, that last death was the most frightening mm. to me too. Uh, I think it was that the, the scarecrow looking boogeyman basically it, it shook the child like a, a sheet mm-hmm. until his neck snapped. And I just thought, Ugh. it just really like kicked me out. Is Ugh. that what he says? Like ice breaking? Yeah. Ugh. But yeah, and it's it's just, um, it's a really ugly story. I think it's probably the ugliest story in this book um, for all the right reasons. I mean, I, I don't, when I read a Stephen King book, I don't always want to like, feel satisfied necessarily you know i mean that like everyone in this story is horrible but yeah so i um that's a i love what you said about cloverfield lane like oh yeah this monster can exist and so can this one and they're yeah. both, they both result in and that's a really interesting viewpoint i think for me it's like like you said dan there's an expectation but it's like for me the idea of the boogeyman like it sounds so stupid yeah you know what i mean <laughs> oh, this is such a dark dark story but like you know it's it's like uh you know but I think what I love is that he's almost investigating what the phrase boogeyman means. Because mm-hmm. kids are all scared of the boogeyman, but it is whatever it is. And it's something that you ostensibly grow out of being afraid of the boogeyman. But I like, you know, but like you guys are saying, the boogeyman can manifest through like an actual malevolent spirit or as, you know, an, a, a piece of shit father. But I think that for me, I almost feel, and like, this is an unpopular opinion, but I almost feel like calling it the boogeyman cheapens it a little bit. Mm. It's like it hurts the story for me a little bit. Mm. 
But then you would lose that moment where the kids start saying the boogeyman yeah. and the wife denies that she taught them that word and the father doesn't believe them. Yeah. That let to leave her. That is one of the moments that, that can is you imagine point. if a kid that like can barely say I want some boogeyman. cookies yeah. all of a sudden say, Oh my god. No, yeah. you're that's a good point. Yeah. That's a very good point. I think it goes back to what we were discussing. Uh, before with uh, the man who loved flowers, your the assessment on that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a passage where he uh, talks about how we were on a quiet street with nice neighbors. We were happy. I asked Rita once if she wasn't worried. You know, bad luck comes in threes and all that. She said, not for us. She said, Andy was special. So she said, God had drawn a ring around them, around him. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it goes back to that idea. And like he mentions how, you know, earlier in that same passage, he talks about it was like, that next year was the best one for us. I'd give every you know, finger on my right hand to have it back again. Oh, the war in Vietnam was still going on and the hippies were still running around with no clothes on. Um, there's terror that's going out there. Uh-huh. You know, the war, the, the world is, you know, falling apart with Vietnam, the, the, the peace movement's going on and everything. And they want to believe that they can live in this, like, sort of microcosm of peace. And and clearly with the boogeyman, it's, it seems like that yeah. metaphor of like, no, you can't get away from it sometimes. Like, you're not untouchable just because you live in this, like, American life, you know? And Yeah, and that's something, I mean, we've talked tons and tons about Stephen King being interested in the darkness inside all dark, in all towns, all small towns. And he has this passage also, I remember, probably around that time where he talks about moving, yeah, moving to this new place. And the boogeyman following him yeah. in the street, like, slithering in the sewers and kind of... And then they find that trail of muck in the house, this idea mm. that this just nastiness follows you wherever you go in idyllic suburbia. Yeah, it's su- super creepy. And, um, you know, like I said, rereading it, not not the most likable story, but definitely <laughs> one of my favorites because it's just, I mean, it just, ugh, it makes me feel so slimy every time I read it. And then going back to, you know, when you're maybe originally reading it and you think to yourself, oh, well, this guy Billings is probably a boogeyman, right? <laughs> originally, when you think, if yeah. you think of it that way. But more importantly, you definitely don't think it's Dr. Harper. At least no. I didn't. Especially because of a couple passages in which he really goes after Billings in, in subtle ways. There's one part where uh, Billings says, Children can tie a man down, you know. Women like that, especially when the man is brighter than they. Don't you find that's true? Harper grunted noncommittally. Okay, so he's kind of like thinking this guy, you know, Billings yeah. is an asshole. Yeah. And then there's another part here where, uh, where is this moment? I Sorry, mean, if you but, really think about it, though, like the whole doctor. Like being a like it goes back it's it goes weird. back to the thing of like when you actually really think about it it's like what the hell is a boogeyman like acting like a therapist it, like, it, it is weird I mean I, I think <laughs> it, don't overthink it, it. I know it's also, I, yeah that's the thing is this the thing is the story the story is so impressive because that ending is the cheesiest fucking shit ever yeah. but I love it but he earns no but the thing is yeah. King earns it yeah. well because he does get at this well, idea that. The boogeyman is following him wherever. I get what you're saying because the idea that the boogeyman is under this like man suit and that he's like talking the whole time. Like, what do you think about this? And, like, <laughs> oh, I, I, I just what, what if like because we don't know what really happens. Man, what if he walks in? Doctor Har- Harper has the the mask off. He's the boogeyman. He's holding it, but he's like he's going to West Lester. Like you know, we're both boogeyman. You're not. We're not so different. You and I. Like they, like, they just like they just team up to be like horrible together. Boogeyman brothers. Uh, I bet you all a nickel that I found the other passage Justin was looking for, right, which right. is. How could I go to Rita and admit I was wrong? I had to be strong. She was always such a jellyfish. Look That's how it. easy she went to bed with me when we weren't married. Yeah. Harper said, on the other hand, look how easily you went to bed with her. And I said, oh, snap! Yep, that's the other part. That is the other part. The boogeyman's a uh, yeah. uh, feminist. feminist. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he's, he's just 
terrified of um, change. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he, he's like the hippies. He's like, you know, I'm all... So, uh, uh, any other final thoughts on the boogeyman? A couple no. things. Yeah, bring There's, it on. They, I mean, they mentioned Tales from the Crypt in the story. Yeah. yeah. And so you have to kind of put yourself in that mindset of like he a DC Comics. He talks about a specific illustrator, doesn't he? He, he talks Which, about a specific monster as he sees like the slithering. And I have to wonder if, uh, because he's Stephen King's such Brand good Angles. friends with Bernie Wrightson and everything, I wonder if that is an, an illustrator he also knew. And another part is when one of the kid, the second kid is screaming um, Craws over and over again. Oh, and he thinks that the kid means Claws. And he second guesses himself and says, or maybe closet. Oh, I think Harper like, suggests either closet. Way. Yeah, it's, yeah. Harper yeah. says maybe she maybe was she saying closet. Closet. Oh. closet. So. It, it is weird thinking that. I mean, I love this story, but it is funny to think that. Oh well, the boogeyman is like a uh, really articulate, <laughs> has articulate speech. Like, oh, hello, <laughs> welcome to my my office. Yes. Yeah, so. yeah. I, I mean, there, there is um, there's a lot to take out of this one, which I think is always the best and mm-hmm. you know, it's just a straight up horror story too yeah I mean, yeah and this this one's still i mean i don't it's maybe structurally not the best constructed i mean they're probably and then thematically not oh it's yeah. pretty great but i it, it just makes me feel so uneasy every time yeah. i read it uh, it just is gross i love hot it hot take maybe the boogeyman is whatever you fear most and what Billings fears most is self-exploration. Wow. Ah, yeah. Ah. Maybe it's a little too yeah. yeah. uh, That is a great take, I will so, say. It's, it's a very hot take. take. It's not even a hot take. It's a, it's a really... I like that. I like yeah, we just take. want to thank uh, Mr. Beaumont Ogieman, uh, <laughs> Mr. Bojman for scaring the hell out of us. Uh, <laughs> but no, um, and, and the whole thing at the end where he's just saying so nice over and over again, <laughs> just yeah. shambling over to him. And, and they say when he, when he speaks, he's got, it sounds like he has like a mouthful of seaweed, he says. Yeah. It's yeah. just like disgusting. Yeah. I do, there, there is something to be said about the whole helicopter parenting like thing aspect of which he was tr- obviously trying to buck. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, you know, I think about that Mad About You episode where... Oh, the, my God. The, I know, look. I'm just going to try to... Well, yeah, to I like, I like Mad About culture. You. But there is a really controversial episode that that happened, which is... Controversial? You know, it was. There was a controversial episode where the one that they have the kid and it's crying and they don't want to go to the kid because that was part of, like, the train. Like, you have to have the kid realize that they have to, like, grow up and it has to go on its own. And, like, they would always go over, you know, like... Helen Hunt's like, oh, I want to go. I know it's crying. The baby's crying. Can I go in? And like Paul Reiser's like, no, no, no. We, you know, just leave her. Mm-hmm. You know, just you, you gotta. You know, she needs to grow up. And um, I think that's like a hard part for any parent to to go over is the, to that sometimes you kind of have to let your kid conquer his own demons and you know you can't always just like you know yeah, no, just leave she's gonna grow up just grow up yeah you know, <laughs> that's my call riser it was a bad call I'm just, I'm just waiting for the for the, the closet door to open and Mr. Bojman comes in and everyone starts clapping <laughs> yeah. no you, but it's, you it's the, Paul Reiser you hear yeah. the bongos like tell me why I love you like a dude <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. well I, you know what that was a great talk but I think it's time to boogie woogie woogie on down the ladder oh. to something called the last rung on the ladder. Um, this is our number two. That's right. Number two. Best story in Night Shift. And the best part about this is that it's a different kind of a horror story. Yes. It's it's, it's definitely a drama more so. But it's the kind of thing that just never leaves you. And mm-hmm. I think that that's the most haunting thing of all. Uh, it's about this character, Larry. He's on his way home with his father from a funeral. Uh, on the way, he recounts a story about his childhood where his sister and he would climb up an old ladder in a barn near the house. Um, They were told not to play on it, but they go anyways. One day, a rung on the ladder breaks, and the girl almost falls to her death, if not for Larry, who saves her by 
building up all this hay to break her fall. Uh, over the course of the flight, he keeps recounting uh, the rest of the story of, of his sister and the rest of her life, which is pretty tragic. And you realize that the funeral was for the sister, that she had committed suicide by, by swan diving off of a, a building. And she used to swan dive off the, and the beam to, in the yes, barn. And she used to swan dive, uh, dive off of the, the beam. And um, it's really tragic. Uh, Larry... The whole thing is there's a letter that he receives and he receives it too late that because he hadn't updated her with his new address that the letter may have gotten to him before she decided to do something like this and he's kind of trying to convince himself that even if he had that maybe he wouldn't have been able to do anything and I think that he in the back of his mind feels like he probably maybe could have done something and and, it, and it'll haunt him for the rest of his life and I don't know. It, it. I mean, I was in tears on the train reading this yeah, yeah. Uh, story. It just hit me really hard, and 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 I, and I was kind of like what you were saying, where I thought maybe there was going to be something supernatural, but he does such a good job of not letting it go there that I really just started to get invested in the drama of the story, and the ending was just heartbreaking. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I mean, this this story is uh, particularly resonant to me because because I have, I have a little sister. Um, I'm actually actually same age difference as as there in the book, and we have a very good relationship. We're still in touch. Um, she's not a call girl in Los Angeles, or anything like that. <laughs> but um, there there is this idea when you're when you're growing up, especially. I remember I you know we're really close, but I would always pick on her, and and um, even now when we see each other, we always joke that like we always get into some huge knockdown drag out fight. Like we just, I mean, I'm not a combative person, but me, her, and I can just like really go at it. Saint anger. Yeah, Saint anger comes out. Saint <laughs> so, anger. Um, but uh, and and you know, I remember one time I was asking my parents, I'm like, you know, why is Allison, um, other Allison, get you know, she gets like so upset like when we like when we fight, and she gets so sensitive about blah blah. And my, and my mom was like, well, you know, um, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Um, you know, um, Jesus, sorry, I wasn't trying to do that. My mom was like, well, you're, you're her big brother, and uh, she'll always look at you like that. And uh, um, Jesus Christ, I'm sorry, I was not playing. That's right, You're her big brother, and, and she will always look up to you, and like, she just, she thinks you're like the coolest person, because you'll always, you'll always be her, uh, her big brother. And, and ever since my mom told me that, like, I've always th- thought about that and, and just tried to be a lot nicer to her. And like I said, we've always been close. Like, I've never been a, a flat-out jerk to my sister. Um, but I think this story just really made me um, made me realize, like, the the faith and the trust that your uh, your siblings can put into you, and your especially your, your younger siblings. And, uh, yeah, j- just when you think about that. And, um, I, and like I said, my, my sister is, like, in no danger of <laughs> going down the path of this girl. But it really—it just made me think of like how important it is to um, to make sure that as you get older and you get busier, and maybe good things happen in your life and your life is going a certain way you want to not not to like lose touch with your family and not, and not to um, not to uh, take things for granted like that. So anyway, sorry, man. Yeah, Jesus, yeah. No, I, I see what yeah. you're saying, and yeah. I think it's like um, I think it, I think the horror of this story is the horror that. Uh, little things like like the progress of life yeah. will um will inadvertently harm others like like you don't up, you don't give someone your updated address and because you didn't do that yeah. you weren't able to stop them mm. from killing yeah. themselves yeah. and how you have to justify how 
the tiny neglect that you did in doing logistical things, how, you know, like he asked himself, he's like, if I had done this one thing, would she still be alive? And I think that that's something we all do as humans is just ask ourselves, like, if I had done this one little mm-hmm. thing different, yeah. oh, totally, yeah. might this have played out differently? Well, and the other thing we all do as humans is neglect people we love without doing so intentionally, mm-hmm. yeah. without doing it from a place of unkindness. He doesn't mean but it But it's really like yeah. life is life and it moves on and all of a sudden you realize that you've been thoughtless or you've forgotten a birthday or you haven't made a phone call and these people you love and take for granted because there are a lot of people in the world who are very lucky to have people they love and that is a thing that is easy to take for granted and then all of a sudden you're left with nothing you mm. left with empty air it's like what uh, Paul Westberg once said uh, <laughs> the ones who love us least are the ones we die to please um, you know, uh, the ones that love us best are the ones we lay to rest. Yeah. And mm-hmm. visit our graves on holidays at best. And, yeah, right? and, yeah, you know? no, you take it for granted, man. And uh, it's, um, it, yeah, it really is a thing you just wonder. Like, and, and it's so easy to put off a phone call. It's so easy to put off an email. I do it all the time. Yeah, and, yeah, it's, and it, none of us mean it. I don't think, um, Larry, is that his name? I don't think Larry means it either. And, uh, but man, it's so heartbreaking when he, when he reads that, that final letter and he's like, that's the one thing that would have, gotten me to fly there and, and it didn't read it in time. and that's honestly like the that's just the genius of king being able to kind of create those levels of yeah. emotional strife like it could have just been enough that she wrote the letter and sent it but the mm-hmm. la- little detail like to your point is yeah is very yeah. Yeah. got there late and very because real. she didn't you know yeah you know and it's i felt like it was also strange that this is a story that um they mentioned that they live in hemingford home nebraska yep and i thought that for to be such an insular story and like something that's actually just like a great piece of writing, um, and obviously this is written before the stand, so mm-hmm. uh, you know he didn't purposely try to tie it into the well, realm. I don't know because it, it was written but just was for it? this. So would it be close? It's I don't close. know though. Well, yeah. Maybe he had it in yeah. his in his head. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, just just awful. And and uh, I yeah, this one just hit me. Really yeah, hard. man. And yeah. and it's it's not it's funny because it's not one when I grew up. I mean, I always liked this story, but. It didn't. Um, once again, you, you get because that's something you realize as an adult. Like you, yeah. you realize as an adult. Oh man, I, I need to really value my siblings and be close to them and and really appreciate that. Whereas when you're growing up, you're like, ah, oh, we're picking on each other, blah, blah blah. And it's um, yeah, it's it, it just. I mean, yeah, that reading. I mean, I, as you can see, it's me being a, being a crybaby. Like me, um, oh, <laughs> me, no. me, me re- reading this on the train the other day because I remember you had read first, Mike, and you were like. You had sent that text, like I think. Well, no, you, he had told me. He had warned me about it. Like, uh, oh, really? Said, yeah. Matt had warned you about it. Well, he had said, like, man, I just like really got emotional. Yeah. yeah. And and you you and then you sent that text. Like, yeah. yeah, it really is like it feels like literature, not just you know genre fiction or whatever. And yeah, I wasn't prepared for it either. Like, I finished it the other day, and I was just like, it felt like a truck hit me. On the I, I just think yeah. this is honestly his first like successful piece of literary fiction. Yeah. Like from front to back, like it it's it's just flawless yeah it's beautiful and it's like I I feel like it's him coming into his own in a style that he really wouldn't capitalize on until I would I mean different different seasons yes but I mean I think he definitely miles a really good one yeah I mean yeah the body yeah I'd say that I was joking I think it was in the last episode yeah because lawnmower man about (laughs) occurrence on Owl Creek Bridge and a good man is hard to find and a small good thing and these classic short stories that will be taught 
in lit classes forever. And this feels of a piece with those kinds of stories. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, I was talking about, I read this when I was seven. I've yeah. been haunted by it. You mentioned that in the ever first since. It moved me very deeply. It means something different to me as an adult, but it affected me very deeply as a child. Mm-hmm. And I think that literature that can grow with you in that way is a real gift. I, I agree. And not to get off on a tie right here, but I the did. sad thing is, is that this story probably will never be taught in classes because of no. the way that, that a lot of literary that the main literary circles view King mm-hmm. and I think it's a it's a fucking shame it really is because it is. it's a beautiful story it's beautifully told and again I don't know I think it's gonna be if you're not a Stephen King fan I don't think anybody's I don't think you're gonna read it and it's, I mean, it's ridiculous it's it's the way I look at it, it's the way I I mean Heather like my wife always gets like like wonders like why I get so like like outraged <laughs> when I go to bookstores and he's like lumped into like the stupid horror section and he's never in fiction and like they actually did put eleven twenty two uh, sixty three in a bunch of fiction areas, mm-hmm. thank God. But um, but the the like we go to like there's a bookstore in uh, Wicker Park that um, that uh, myopic like, myopic yeah, and they have like a basement where they put all the horror sections. And it's like all his books are like lit right next to like you know Twilight and like Goosebumps. And I'm like this is a joke. <laughs> like this is an absolute joke. Like I don't yeah, know, like, Monster Blood's like, pretty good. Like, Monster Blood's pretty great. But Welcome to Dead House and you know Last Run on the Ladder. Like, <laughs> <don't make> <laughs> Yeah. It, it just it just drives me nuts because again like and this is gonna be something that you're gonna hear from me again and again mm-hmm. like over these podcasts like I I hate this snark that comes with literary fiction and like these literary writers like because I heard about it nonstop like at FSU I like hated all my teachers there oh they because they were so against genre Weingartner would, wouldn't because he was buddies well, with Stephen yeah. King but, but everyone I mean, else they would but there, yeah. there would be like some writers there in there that would just like sit there and like dig into like all this genre stuff and I grew up on that stuff and, I'm, and I like that stuff because I feel like that's like first off it's not that easy to write go tell that to Rod Serling who wrote like you know uh, amazing, countless yeah. fucking great stories for the, uh, for the Twilight Zone again and again and again and again versus someone who sat there and wrote you know gorgeous prose about like you know life themes and all but there's an originality that that comes with genre that speaks to a far broader mm. like writer i i would argue and like the fact that he does get maligned on it is like you can't it, it, that just bothers me so when i get to this story like this i do think that bothered me a lot like reading the story like it, just being like god this guy is such a fucking genius writer and he gets shamed on like, I think all the time k austin collins who's a who's a reviewer um, recently on the podcast i listened i heard him talk about how it's with genre that we can really get down to deeper themes yeah. as opposed to just, you know, yeah. mosaic well, scenery and whatnot. And that's, I know we're kind of getting off on a tangent about King in general, but there's a reason why we've got genre fiction. You know, it, does, it can't all be yeah. beautiful. It well, it's using these otherworldly elements to bring out a greater humanity in you. I don't mean humanity like being a good person. I mean, just like human aspects. I mean, you're forced to kind of confront these things about yourself when you're faced with a handful of alien eyeballs, you know? Yeah, yeah, know, <laughs> yeah. but I agree. And, like, you know, someone, you know, you could have a story uh, using aliens to talk about, you know, uh, racial problems that someone might not read if they knew it was about that, but they read it from the standpoint, like, you know, that Star Trek episode, you know, mm-hmm. about the, the, the white and the black, yeah. uh, you know, uh, that you know, seeing that it, it might reach someone on a level and, and, and penetrate and actually get into their head and change something but that they wouldn't have necessarily read the story if they knew it was actually about that. It's you know? the hook, so it's like, right? It's the gateway. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's slowly improving. I think that yeah, um, mm-hmm. definitely. 
you know, Tolkien is often now shelved in fiction. Vonnegut is shelved in fiction yeah. exclusively. Slaughterhouse Five is one of the best pieces of science fiction mm-hmm. ever. It's yeah. also, in my opinion, the best war novel ever written. Mm-hmm. And it can be both those things. Um, there was a big <laughs> Outlander thing where Diana Gabaldon <laughs> had to um, write the New York Times and request that they stop calling the Outlander books romance novels because, first of all, they're not. Romance is that a very specific it. genre. Yeah. And it's not that Outlander is better. It's that it's not... Romance novels just stand alone. They have these very specific requirements and those books are not that. Um, and it's also not fantasy and it's not science fiction and it's not time travel. Yeah. sort of all of those things. Mm-hmm. And gradually, I think those books are starting to break. Like Murakami is a genre writer. Yeah. No one would ever say, oh, well, let's make sure he stays in science fiction. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that we're going to start to see those break down more and yeah. more as yeah. things like the Harry Potter series become more and more ubiquitous. And, yeah. Yeah. I want to, at the end of the day, I mean, I, and I kind of love that a story like this can exist um, in the same collection as like Graveyard Shift. I think yeah. that should, that's just like a testament to yeah. Lawnmower Man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Green Pubes is so yeah. wild. It Green really pubes. is. Wild. It's, it's think, like, about, think about Green Pubes in that last passage of. of or this, or just like he, he writes about Green Pubes, then he could write <laughs> he could write about like this, like you know, uh, I mean, just look look how just real this feels. I mean, like he writes. Uh, I remember that day very clearly. The sky was overcast, and while it wasn't cold, you could feel it wanting to be cold, wanting to get down to the business of frost and freeze, snow and sleet. The fields were stripped. The animals were sluggish and morose. There seemed to be funny little drafts in the house that had never been there before. On a day like that, the only really nice place to be was the barn. It was warm, filled with a pleasant mixed aroma of hay and fur and dung, and with a mysterious chuckling, cooing sounds of the barn swallows high up in the third loft. If you creaked your neck up, you could see the white November light coming through the clinks in the roof and try to spell your name. It was a game that really only seemed agreeable on overcast autumn days. Like, that is some, like, Robert Frost. Beautiful, man. It's fucking beautiful. That is gorgeous. And, like, (laughs) it's in the same story as, like, the, you know, (laughs) giant rat, like, with blind or whatever. So, you know what? Anybody who ever has a problem with Stephen King, uh, lick my nine. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, uh... Final thoughts? Last row on the ladder? No, I think it's great, man. It's very good. Beautiful, beautiful story. I think uh, I think the best way to cap off um, our discussion is if we all just have one for the road, which is our number one. That was almost sweet. Right <laughs> exactly. I didn't want to end it on a silly one. I wanted to be sort of, you know, one for the road. Well, One for the Road was originally published in Maine Magazine circa <laughs> March April 77. So, Maine uh, Magazine. Maine Magazine. Everyone's go-to for Maine hot news. I mean, could you <laughs> could you imagine this story <laughs> like pulling up Maine Magazine? I, first off, I've never read Maine Magazine before. Is it like a... Because Maine's a vacation state, so is it like a tourist magazine? I it, imagine yeah. it's a tourist magazine, and they're like, they're like, hey, Maine's got Stephen King, and look what he's bringing <laughs> to the table. Like, this is how he views Maine. Anyway. Guys, I only read Maine for the articles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I like the hot spreads. Um, or should I say the cold spreads? The cold spreads. Um, anyway, this is a coda uh, to Salem's Lot, a sequel, if you will, in the best kind. The uh, best it, kind of sequel. amazing. Here's the hook. During a massive blizzard all across Maine, a couple of old souls at a local watering hole help a stranded tourist from New York slash New Jersey uh, save his family from the vampires of Salem's Lot. Yeah. That's the that's the pitch. And that's it, yeah. It's like it's a little bit of a I, I if I had to pitch it to a Hollywood agent right now, it's um 
Grumpy old men meets 30 days of night. <laughs> Why do your notes yeah. say Halloween for redneck? Okay, now I have the Halloween for rednecks on there because the way that they come into the bar, the it reminds me of the um, the the rednecks that are just sitting there, like in Halloween four, where they're all just like, oh, all, that's like, right, yeah, Earl, let's go do something, yeah. and then they like they dunk 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 dunk, like, and then they you know go off and save the kid. Um, here's a question: <laughs> Is there a better touch and go sequel? Uh, than this. I mean, I, I, I feel like this is exactly what I wanted and needed after Salem's Lot. I mean, it, not, not only does it like, you know, it proves that vampires still exist. Yeah. yeah. And this it, is and then, two years later. And this is two years yeah. later. And then it also tr- uh, proves that everything that will happen, you know, like, is now mythology. And it's yeah. become this urban legend. And, and, and I think one of the powers of this story for me was that we kind of feel like the old timers. Like, we know what's happening. Like, we we actually know more than them. Yeah. Because, like, when Booth and, and Herb, which I fucking love Herb, um, they, <laughs> when they start, like, ta- kind of whispering about the lot and they relate to some things and, like, you know, like, the, the things that burned down, we know who burned it down, which they don't. They don't, yeah. They don't know about Ben Mears and that's kind of cool and, like, powerful. Like, I think that's what we love as sequels is when we're able to see, like, the story the omniscient evolve. Reader, you know? the omniscient, we're the omniscient, yeah. you know, well, and narrator. What I, what I love about this is that it gets at this idea that, yes, there's still vampires... But it also makes it clear that there are not enough of them to overrun the outlying communities. It's more, it's it's almost like, don't go into that part of town, you know. And that is so effective because I, I love this idea of it just being these like salty Maine locals, just knowing we cannot go into that town if we don't go into into that town, then then we're okay. And I and I also I. Because this book is filled with a lot of ugly characters in general, I love that the two guys at the center of this, they know how dangerous it is. They know that there's a very slim chance of any of them getting out alive, but they're good people. They still and help. They want, and this guy mm-hmm. kind of sucks. Like, he's this yeah. kind of yuppie douchebag, and yeah. they're like, they keep having these moments of like, should we just let him go? And they're like, no, we can't. What are we going to do if he gets killed or something? You know, we have to we have to try our best to help him. And they do, and they, they can, obviously, but I love that about them. These are, these are good guys. Yeah, and I... I guess one of the, this is just pivoting off what you just said, yeah. uh, but it's like I love Stephen King's like disdain for yuppies. Yeah, yeah. I think like I think part of him was one to a degree, but it's like he has such a fondness for like salty locals. Yeah. You know, like yeah, old guys. Yeah, too, like yeah. old guys. Like he'll make them kind of like losers sometimes, but then he'll make them the heroes too. And like even if you look at the stand, like Gary Sinise is like the hero. Gary, I call him Gary Sinise. Gary Sinise. Stu Redmond. Redmond. Stu yeah. Redmond. Hey, hey, <laughs> Gary Sinise is Stu Redmond. I know. Yeah. That's how I, I'm reading it right now, and it's just like that is who it is in my mind. But it's so funny. But it's like. Like, you know, that's he's like a salty local, you know, yeah. and it's like uh, and I love that. But I think like what I think is interesting is, you know, Stephen King got the idea for Salem's Lot because he drove uh, by this town uh, with a friend when he was in college. And basically there was a story about this town that it just was abandoned. Like yeah. one day everyone was gone and it reminded him of Roanoke, you know, like the old Roanoke story, which he's used in multiple, uh, yeah. like especially in Storm, Storm of the Century and stuff like that. He loves to call upon that idea of, like, a whole town mysteriously vanishing. And in a lot of ways, like, One for the Road is more in the spirit of that initial spark Mm -hmm. that inspired Salem's Lot. uh, In the sense that, you know, that is the legend that exists, is that Salem's Lot is a dead town. King is kind of a... Or he's this... uh, The main guy is kind of like a... In a way, a surrogate for King's experience. I'm driving by this town, and I I just hear... 
I mean, we, we've talked about this a ton, but once again, he just he establishes the idea of what this bar is like so well, and what these guys yeah. are like, and what their relationship is like, and he does that for a good little while before the um, the New Jersey yuppie comes in, and yeah, he just it just unfolds so perfectly, and it's very simple. Like, there's nothing no. especially complex about this story. It's just a good yarn, and like you said, we're so accustomed now to sequels being either just retreads or like bigger and better versions of the of the original and this is not that this is just like okay what would realistically happen if this town full of vampires got mostly wiped out but not quite and someone happened to stumble upon it a couple of years later and and that's that's really all it is and the thing about Salem's Lot the, the original novel is it's so pastoral too you know? yeah. and you can see everything you can see the house up on the hill from way, from far away but now we're in the dead of winter mm-hmm. yeah. you can't see anything you've got snow blindness so that's yeah. another great twist on not just having this be a sequel like you said bigger and better it's this whole new thing with vampires in Salem's Lot. And the, and sa- the seasons change things. Like, the snow changes everything. Vampire, yeah. Vampires in the snow is, just, are, is yeah. terrible. I mean, my, my, my favorite moment is when uh, uh, they're in the car mm. and he says something approaches the car, yeah. which I thought was incredibly creepy. I mean, it's something with big red eyes. Uh, it says, um, I thought I could see some sort of slumped form fading back from the car back into the snow. But that could have been imagination. It's just it's that's creepy. something that that's something that the horror writer Ramsey Campbell does a lot that I love, which is the idea that um, its characters ex- like seeing something, but then immediately writing it at, off. At, yeah, writing it off. Like there's this line in the and this one Ramsey Cameron uh, Ramsey Campbell book, the uh, the Grin of the Dark, where he talks about he's like he's like that man running alongside the train can't be ten feet tall, can he? You know, and it's like yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like he'll just say a line like that and then move on, and that's all I, he'll I say. I love that though. Yeah, well, about about that figure you bring up I actually had a question he hasn't really answered either way so I'm just curious what you guys think because I was wondering is that the vampire that turned the wife and daughter that's slinking away or is it the wife I kind of like to prefer that it's a vampire that turned them and <laughs> that you just, never see I, yeah, I, I think, think that's a good idea yeah, I think yeah. it's the vampire that probably Be, turned well, them because so. when they get out then you think yeah. the turn they is that recent say, yeah. they Ooh. say that they see the footsteps of the kid and the, the wife and, and they, they mention that if they had gone even just a little bit, you know, minutes later, they wouldn't have seen those footsteps. So yeah. those are fresh. Yeah. So it couldn't have been, and that was going the other way. And then so it had know, to have been. That so it probably was oh, so vampire. Well, that's and a vampire. Oh, sorry. sorry. That's a good transition because I mean they describe what the vampires look like with their teeth and, yeah. and their beautiful you know, vulpine, vulpine faces, faces yeah. and pale and beauty. And they're, and well, they're hovering. For me, yeah, that's the part. Now, that's yeah. the, that's the scariest part yeah. for me of this whole story is when. Um, you know, Tookie and uh, Booth are just getting ready to get the hell out of town. They're they're yeah. they're done, and um, yeah. so they're about to leave. And all of a sudden, Mister, she said in a oh, high, man. clear voice, as sweet as morning mist, "Won't you help me find my mother? She's gone, and I'm so cold." Honey, I said, "Honey, you better get in the truck. Your mother's." I broke off, and if there was ever a time in my life I was close to swooning, that was the moment. She was standing there, you see, but she was standing on top of the snow, mm-hmm. and there were no tracks in any direction. Yeah, that's so, so good. Well, that reminds me of this, this, which I talked about on the Salem's Lot episode, but the scariest part of Salem's Lot to me is that moment when um, King describes Susan and, um, and uh, Straker coming towards the cop yeah. after the oh, house, yeah. and like they're just floating towards him. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is like so eerie. My, my, I would say the, the real great moments of this is kind of like what... Um, you were talking about with those things that like the stingers where you just kind of leave with you is the story of Richie mm-hmm. and about how he's just like, Oh, I, you know, I'll sleep in the Marston house. Oh, for the, tr- the trucker guy. Or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. It is. yeah. And he like leaves. And then one of the other guys, this guy named Lamont Henry says real quiet, 
That's the last time anyone's going to see Richard uh, Richie Messina. Messina. They, <laughs> they the just, they just accept it. Yeah. And they accept it, and then, and then he's right. And, they get, and, so they and say what's like, funny, too, is they don't actually pay him to go do it. He's just no, like, I'll just do it. Because yeah, then they, yeah. they say, like, nobody ever saw Richie again. His wife told the state cops that he'd gone down to Florida to beat a collected, you know, collection agency. But you could see the truth of the thing in her eyes. Six scared eyes. Not long after that, she moved away to Rhode Island. Maybe she thought Richie was going to come after her Ugh. some dark night. And I'm not the man to say he might not have done it. Mm. Wait, like, no, 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 that's what, like, ugh. No, what I love about all that, I mean, and we talked about this kind of quiet resignation, just this acceptance of the fact that, oh, we live near this town that's like that. And, you know, I always think, like, okay, I like guess we're sitting here talking right now. Like, think about the ocean and think about all the things in the ocean right yeah. now. Like, the, like sharks or whatever, yeah. whatever else, things we don't even know about. And that always freaks me out, like how you could be somewhere safe and just talking about this thing. And if you think about it, there, there is another part of the world, world where there are these dangerous creatures or whatever else, and they can't hurt you where you are right now. But just the fact that they're they, there, I mean, that and they really establish that in the story. Well, it's like so in well. Jaws when they're like sitting there talking about their wounds and their flesh. Yeah, and they're like, oh, the things like out there. Yeah. It's right below them. Yeah, <laughs> creepy man. Yeah, I believe from a, a story, like a fictional standpoint. Again, I talked about this in our Salem's episode. Salem's Lot is still out there. Yeah, it's not like it blew up. It's just in Castle Rocks. So yeah. Probably. I mean, it's just out there, and there are still vampires walking around. And yeah. I love that that thought that you just—it's just, it's just yeah. there. The other little bit of horror that I love is—is because is, this would have been me too, but uh, is that they try to drive through an unplowed road. Yeah. yeah. And um, when, by all means, they could have just stopped and gotten a motel, but the, the guy was like, no, I can make it, I can make it. Oh, yeah. That's me. Like, I am someone who <laughs> wants to get the drive done as quick as possible, mm-hmm. and I, like, um, years ago, I was driving, um, I went to Atlanta, and I was driving up from Atlanta to Chicago, and uh, this was in 2011, I believe, or maybe 2012. Uh, I think 2011. And um, there were these tornadoes that ripped through, uh, like, Alabama and Kentucky and stuff like that. Like, really disastrous, made national news tornadoes. And, like, we were driving right through that storm. The The sky was pitch black. And um, we were hearing reports on the news, like, well, this town just got decimated by a tornado. Uh, ten minutes later, we'd see the sign for that town, and I was with my friends, and we were like, "Should we stop?" And we're like, "No, just keep going," oh, man. like because we're, we're like yeah. we're behind it, you know. Yeah. And like, but then I and we were fine, but it's like there is that sense of like you are taking major risks when you do that kind of shit, and like that was just like an un, un like that was a minor part of horror for this, but like when I was watching, it, I was like, "Dude, don't drive on the unplowed road," yeah. but I probably would have done the same thing. I I, I think uh, kind of that effect, you know, this is in Maine Mag. Magazine. And I think, <laughs> no, 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 no. But like, I, I think to that, that point, though, he there is like some sort of authority that King has on the weather of this area. Yeah. You know, like when he the way he describes it, <laughs> nor'easter. He's, like, he's like, it's the wind I don't like when it picks up and begins to howl, driving the snow into a hundred weird flying shapes and sounding like all the hate and pain and fear in the world. There's death in the throat of a snowstorm, wind, white death, and maybe something beyond death. That's no sound to hear when you're tucked up all cozy in your own bed with the shutters bolted and the doors locked. It's that much worse if you're driving. And we were driving smack into Salem's lot. And like that that sort of knowledge of how that sort of that uh, that blizzard is going to be like totally comes from a person that grew up in that area. Yeah. Like, you know, you could cuz you could just kind of picture what a, you know, snowstorm is, but like there are like so many little details in just those lines alone and throughout the whole story that you just totally believe that like you know, King oh yeah, is, and you can tell he wrote this for the main. He, like he's an expert magazine. Publication. Once again, on the on that kind of working class rural, you know, main main citizen. I mean, because he is one of those. Yeah. And um, just kind of get, going to the ending a little bit. I just want to make sure we. 
I talk about. I just I love how in this story that these two guys who did the right thing. I love that we know they they get out of it. You know, yeah. I mean, Toki dies a couple years later because he's old, yeah. but he doesn't die getting bitten by a vampire. Yeah. You know, and I just um, it, it's it's just a really nice refresher from stories like like Gray Matter is great, but, <laughs> but at the end you're like, oh, these guys everybody's might not, fucked. Everyone yeah. might be fucked. I like that these two guys are able to like get back to the comfort of their bar, and they don't comp- compromise the horror at all because they allow more teasers. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. like they talk talk about how hitchhikers occasionally disappear. Yeah, or um, like uh, always like. Uh, you know things in the lot go pretty much as they always have yeah you know like but yep that's how it goes around here now you know (laughs) don't go down that road also one of the still one of the best kickers in the in the whole uh book tying it back to somewhere out there is just like a little girl waiting for a kiss or something Uh, she wants a good night kiss yeah wants a good final thoughts on uh one for the road and maybe even night shift as a whole dad can we go now you ready yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. He said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Yeah, oh, should we give it our old? Yeah. I think we should. I think we yeah. should give it our, our rating. Um, well, what, do you, what do you think, Allison? Because Allison had to depart. So Allison had to depart. Allison uh, got spirited away by a vampire. Yeah, she got spirited away. <laughs> no, uh, she had. She had to leave the. But she did early. love uh, Tookie. 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 She loved Tookie, and she wanted to make sure that that we said because she compared it to her neighborhood bar in Rogers Park, the neighborhood in Chicago, the Oasis. Uh, she said Tookie's is very similar, and for that reason, I think she would give um, Night Shift five. Pennywise clown. No, I'm just kidding. She probably. I'd say she'd probably give uh, four, Night four Shift three. I'd say three and a half three or half? four. Okay. Uh, uh, Penny red Pennywise clown noses. Um, so that's Allison's rating, and I'm gonna be definitive on that. And, um, <laughs> Sorry, Allison. <laughs> Next episode, we'll allow her to adjust that if she wants. Yeah, to. And then, um, I'll, yeah, I think I'll give my rating. I I love Night Shift. I love how much it. I love how much variation there is. I love that we're watching sort of young Stephen King find his voice and experiment with different voices and indulge his influences. I think there's so many memorable stories and I don't think, you know, I think the only story that I feel like is is one I would never want to read again is Sometimes They Come Back. Yeah. And even then, I think there's good parts of it, but I'd never want to read it again. Yeah. Yeah, the rest of these, I feel like I could absolutely read again. Mm-hmm. And, um... And so for that reason, I'd give, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm always stingy with my Pennywise clown noses, so <laughs> I'm going to give it a, a four uh, red Pennywise clown noses, uh, and that's, you know, that's my definitive rating. Mike? Uh, well, I mean, I always come after Randall on these things, and, you know, we, I, I usually have the same rating, and um, on this one I do too. So, uh, you know, four uh, red Pennywise clown noses for me, um, and a lot of that is elevated by... Uh, well, the the lower ten on this, uh, or the, the top ten on this list. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, th- these are some of the. I, I personally think one for the road is better than Salem's Lot. I'm, gonna, I'm going that far to say it because I, I just think it's a far more effective story for me that haunts me in a certain way that a lot of stories so far that we've read have. <clears throat> and um, I, I think that there's something to be said about small scares versus long scares. Absolutely. You know, like when you could actually, when you, when you have less, I, I'm a real big fan of less is more, you know, like when, when you don't have everything spelled out and some of the stories that do that really well, um, you know, like, uh, the night surfs or, uh, um, uh, trucks, mm-hmm. for example, like those that just let you linger in the mind. You don't really get that a lot in novels because you kind of have to lay it all out. You have so, to complete everything. You know, yeah. I, I I really like that, and I like, and I think that's the the short um, short story model 
Well, yeah, I mean, look at how great. look at how we're always praising the endings of all these stories. When yeah. with King, usually it's like, man, eh, well, he kind of miffed the ending yeah. a little, yeah. <laughs> because it's like he overextended his stay a little yeah. bit, you know. And so for me, um, I I love it. I think this is, uh, you know, has the the last run on the ladder is uh, is definitely we went at lengths on that. I think that's mm-hmm. great. Um, or this personally for me is is my favorite so far of yeah. his writings, mm-hmm. and I think again. Uh, it's attributed to his short story writing versus his long form, like like you were saying with the endings. I think all of these endings, and maybe it's because they don't really have an ending. <laughs> a lot of them are open ended, but uh, I just think they're they're terrifying. They're scary. These are the stories that have stuck with me the most so far, and I've, some of them really scared me or really touched me more than Salem's Lot, Carrie, or or The Shining. Um, Rage, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's Mac everybody. Rage. Yeah, I avoided rage. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna definitely hit that one. You up. cannot give it a fan uh, of the pain. I know, I know. I'm, no, I'm but, sure. But watching but, you um, reading this, like you definitely seem far more alive. Like with with, with a lot of these, though. Like yeah, mean, you no, were really. I, I really now. got into it, and I, I think he's much better at writing short stories than than he is. Uh, oh, oh boy, we are keep that in way, there. Yeah, not take that out. Now, granted, now granted, I have never. I haven't read the only the only books that I had. Read Stephen King wise, and that was only over the last couple of years. Are all the Dark Tower books? Mm-hmm. So I've not read any of these other okay, books. Yeah. So Make that clear. Obviously, I'm just saying, <laughs> going right now from chronological order I think that wise. Is a, I think that is a valid, interesting opinion that is necessary for this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I will say this. Okay, and, you go ahead. First. And let me just. Get, I, I'm going to say I'm going to give it four and a half red. Pennywise cloud nice. and maybe a a, a pom pom button. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. How about you had that button that you bought uh, recently? The nice. Oh button. yeah, yeah, with the uh, the hand with the eyes on it. Yeah. Ooh, we'll, we'll take a picture of that. Put it on Instagram. Yeah. Um, okay, we'll say this, Mac. I do agree that this uh, up until this point, if you count the three King novels, the Bachman book, Rage, and this, I think this is his best work. So I too would give it four and a half. Pennywise red clown noses. Yes. Um, just looking at this, but not all time, obviously, just the 70s. But looking at the short story list, I mean, granted, obviously, some are better than others, but what did I say? I, I thought I, I thought three quarters of Sometimes They Come Back was actually pretty yeah. solid. Yeah. yeah. And then even after that, like, I like Battleground. I even like The Mangler for the most part until the... Really, the only reason I get a, a half of half a nose less... <laughs> It's because of the unnecessary use of black magic yeah. in your manglers and your sometimes they come backs and your I know what you need, but I mean Get rid of the he's, he's written some yeah. really strong he's, he's he's delivered some really strong short story collections as the years have gone on. But this yeah. is the best one in my opinion. Even Not over to, uh, different seasons? Well that's more of a novella collection though. Mm. That's a forward novella. Yeah. This is short stories, so for the short story king collections, this is my number one. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I'm with, I'm right with Justin, man. Um, four bright red Pennywise clown noses for me. Um, well, I, he went four and a half. Four and a half. Wait, no, no, four and a half. half. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Did I say four? Four and a half. But yeah, four and a half is what I meant. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, <laughs> exaggerate. Kind of fun. I was like, okay. Yeah. All right. No, no. Um, it is. I mean, <laughs> the only book I would and I wasn't on this episode. I would probably give Salem's Lot five bright red Pennywise clown noses. Although I haven't read it recently. Um, so out of the episodes I've been on, I mean, this is by far the strongest collection. Um. Yeah, I'm with Justin. Even even sometimes I come back, I, I still was entertained by his story. Mm-hmm. I just think, I think it's really fascinating to see him work out some new methods of storytelling for himself. I mean, I, Woman in the Room and The Last Rung in the Ladder, I think, mm-hmm. reach levels that nothing he's written so far yeah. has, and I, th- I think it's a really good indicator of what's to come. And I, I don't know if it's because it's the first one I read or, or what, but yeah, I just think this is 
such a strong collection. Maybe maybe even more so than Skeleton Crew. Definitely more so than uh, something like Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Um, I'm, I just got a Bizarre of Bad Dreams from the ooh, library, so ooh, I'll be reading it's that It's good. There's some yeah. good stuff, but this does not compare to Night Shift. No, yeah. I, I just, Night, Night Shift has I don't a, think they ever will, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, Night Shift has always just like stuck with me my whole life, and uh, there's a rawness about it I love, too. So you, take out, you take out... You take out sometimes they all you know sometimes they come back. You take out the lawnmower. Man. No, don't take out lawnmower man. <laughs> you take it you out. You need it. I, I, you, that, it's, it's, I get, you get a five bagger almost for me. Uh, <laughs> I need a five noser. I need those <laughs> a five noser. I need those green pubes. Uh, they add character and texture uh, to this book. That Where I, hey, very. Say? If I could just make one yes. one request. Um, for any future iTunes reviews, uh-huh. if you could please incorporate hashtag green pubes <laughs> in the review, uh, we will we will note it. And I will, will mention it in future episodes. I will please do that. I'm going to actively discourage you from doing that. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it'll be great. I don't want our iTunes reviews to be a of of orgy of of pubes <laughs> of people talking about pubes of, all the time. Of, uh, okay. pubes. Yeah, don't listen, don't don't listen pubes. to Uncle Randall. Listen yeah. to Uncle Justin. <laughs> oh my! It's, again, it's hashtag hashtag g r e e n p u b e s. Here's a funny story. My friends and I went. My brother worked at Meyer, which was a uh, like a Walmart type yeah, store in Michigan. Yeah. yeah, and we went. And uh, my brother worked there, and he knew the code. If you picked up one of the phones that were on there and you punched in some numbers, you could get on the intercom. My brother told me what the code was, and my friends and I like went one night, and we were like, "We're gonna say something over the intercom." But we were all really nervous, and like only one of us had the gall to do it. But we like split up when we did it for some reason because we didn't want to like draw a crowd. And um, my bu- and so suddenly I just heard. And then, like, a pause, then my friend just goes, pubes. <laughs> and then hung up. And that was literally all we said, and we, like, lost it. It was the best night of my life. Oh. Um, thank well, that's a short story in itself. I know. That's a short story. So, thank you so much for listening. Um, this was episode two of our three-part uh, Night Shift series. Uh, n- uh, next time, we're going to be talking about the film and the TV adaptations, as well as the comic. There's been some comic adaptations as well. So the lawnmower, man. Oh, really? Yeah. See that? Sure, I didn't yeah. know. Sure well, that, we're going to discuss all those things uh, next time, so stay tuned for that. And, um, you know, like I said, uh, iTunes reviews really help. You can hashtag green pubes if you want. Uh, <laughs> and um, follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Uh, everyone who's already involved knows that we respond because we love talking about Stephen King. So thanks so much for sticking it out with us, guys. This was really fun. And... Um, until next time, long days and pleasant nights. Hashtag Green Peaks. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you Consequence Podcast Network.